This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, sponsored by Soundring. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special jam-packed episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your ever-present host, Ray Harkins, and the reason I say it's jam-packed is because there is so much cool stuff that is contained within this audio file that you have downloaded onto your mobile device or your computer or wherever it is you listen to it, because this is an exciting thing. So, oh, I don't even know where to begin, but I'll first begin by saying who the guest is and why you should keep listening to this entire conversation. So, The guest this week is Mark Brickey. He does a podcast called Adventures in Design, which is an incredible show uh, for even people like me who have uh, very little uh, technical skill when it comes to designing. Actually, it's pretty terrible, to be frank. But um, his show focuses on the, the people that are creating the cool stuff that you like to look at, from album art to posters to everything in between. These are very accomplished people. His show focuses in on those people and, um, you know, goes through their journey. Not too dissimilar to, to what I do. His show is a little more free-flowing. But we came together. These two forces of nature, myself and Mark, decided to sit in a room and essentially do what bands have done for years and years and years. It, we did a split. It's a split seven-inch, a, a split podcast, whatever you'd like to call it. Um, yeah, it, it, I was just excited that he came to me with this idea. And I was like, this is a great idea. Let's go ahead and do this. Um, so, yeah, it, the conversation is not very, uh, I guess, similar to what maybe you uh, would expect from this show. But uh, I loved it nonetheless. It was great because, you know, you find out a little bit Mark about Mark. You find out about myself. And we just go to so many awesome places. And I think it was, uh, yeah, it was, an, it was a great conversation. And it's a lot longer than what you would have normally anticipate from the show. This one is close to two hours. So uh, buckle, buckle up and um, hopefully you make it to the end of it. And if you do, then that's awesome. Digital high five. But there's another reason why this show is so special. It's because we are now part of a network. And when I say a network, it's like-minded shows coming together to expose you, the listener, to other awesome stuff that's happening out there. Because I'll be frank, it it frustrates me that uh, music doesn't have its kind of uh, place at the table in regards to the podcast world. Obviously, you have technology represented, you have comedy represented, and there's so many other things in which the world needs to be more, uh, I guess, attuned to or exposed to. So basically, this thing is called Jabberjaw Media Network. And it was myself and a couple of close friends who decided to kind of collectively pull this thing together and uh, launch it. And for those of you that have paid close attention to what I've done, which is a very, very select few of you, I tried to do this a long time ago, maybe about a year and a half or so ago. And um, it was it was fun, but it was difficult for me to maintain on my own. So this thing came along and, oh man, super, super exciting. So it's great because, like I said, this show is now part of a network and there are other cool shows that are part of this network as well. So visit JabberJawMedia.com and it's so incredible too because we have a sponsor that decided to jump in on this with us and spread the word organically and yeah i'm just excited so sound rink 
Soundrink is an experience company. When I say an experience company, they sell tickets to live events. Yeah, that could be a show, but it could also be something entirely different. So visit soundrink.com, a great site. I've bought tickets from them before, so I can't endorse these people enough. And I was really, really excited that they came on to the launch of this thing. So yes, super excited. Visit jabberjawmedia.com and please visit soundrink.com because they are a great provider for all of the live experiences and events that you want to attend. Super exciting. So like I said, there, there's other shows that are part of the network, which is even more exciting. Um, shows like Bad Christian and shows like Nothing to Write Home About with Matt Pryor. Basically, once you visit that website, you will find hours and hours of content and other shows, like I said, that if you listen to this, you should be listening to these other shows. Because I'll be frank, I listen to like about 70 podcasts. And I know that sounds like a ridiculous thing, but I, I love the medium so much that Every time I trip on a new show that's like, oh, that's remotely interesting, I'll try it out. And if I like it, subscribe. You're, you're with me forever. You have to do a lot in order for me to not listen to your show anymore. So anyways, do that. Become familiar with the network. I'll be plugging some of these shows that are part of our family uh, in future episodes. And you'll be able to become more aware because ultimately that's what we're all trying to do. So all that being said, there's also more stuff that I want to tell you about and ask a favor so the my preferred method for listening to podcasts is this amazing amazing app called overcast which you can buy uh via the itunes store and wherever your the app store everything uh where you can buy apps for your ios device overcast is an incredible player but the reason that i'm mentioning that is because if those of you that are partaking in that listening experience there's a method in which you can recommend these shows so uh every time you uh you know you're listening to a show on overcast scroll up a little bit use your, your little pointer finger scroll up and then you can see a recommended button um this is going to sound so small and and minute but i promise it, it does really really cool things because basically there's a little music section on uh, their discovery platform which you know introduces a lot of people to a lot of cool music shows and i, I want to be a part of that and so uh yeah every time you're listening to the show on that player go ahead and just press the recommend button takes one second out of your day to do that and i would really really appreciate that and uh, also our producer is in a band so for those of you that pay attention to the show very regularly, our producer, Tom Richfield, great chap. You can uh, hear him in some previous episodes uh, talking about his touring experiences in the UK and just, uh, you know, he pops in occasionally. So he's in a band called Hindsights and he wrote this description, but I think it is so absolutely accurate in what they sound like. So he, he described it. It's like, yeah, Taking Back Sunday, you know, Jimmy World. And then this is the, the perfect description or drive through records bands that you would have listened to on your T-Mobile sidekick in 2004. Talk about a just a spot-on description. So anyways, he his band has a new music video out. You can find it on uh, the Kerrang! website. And they're also playing a release show at the London Barfly on November 23rd as part of a tour with Apologies I Have None. They have some other tour dates that are listed. Basically, just, just find out that info. Just Google Hindsight's UK band and you will be directed to there. But yeah, support Tom. And if you listen to the show in the UK and you are going to see Tom perform, go, go say hi. Be like, hey, I, I like the podcast. I listen to what you do it, because it's cool because it brings us all that much closer. So shout out to Tom. Good luck at the show. I wish I could be there, but uh, I can't because I'm located in California. So there we go. But all that business stuff out of the way, I I. Pr I 
assure you it's worth the wait because that, that was a lot of info. And thank you for listening. So, like I said, Mark Bricky, host of the Adventures in Design podcast. It was, uh, yeah, it was awesome. I went over to his house. We hung out for uh, a long time. And it was really interesting because usually I prepare questions. Um, I have, you know, maybe about 10 sort of talking points that we can kind of, you know, bounce off of and reflect on and whatever. So uh, I sit down with Mark and he's like, yeah, I don't have any questions. And I was like, oh, so maybe I shouldn't have any questions. So I kind of pulled back on that, put away my my little iPad and was like, all right, let's just uh, have a conversation. So it was uh, it was really fun. And I think we went to some really, really interesting places that uh, reflect on pursuing creative art, uh, pursuing the things you're passionate about, and then uh, some of our origin stories. And yeah, a lot of stuff in here. But uh, I promise you, it, uh, there's some very, very good tidbits in there that you'll be able to take and apply to your own life, because essentially that's what I am hoping that you get out of the show. So anyways, without further ado, strap in, get a cup of coffee, grab a soda, whatever it is you drink, and uh, come enjoy this with me. So here's Mark Ricky, and I will talk to you after the show's over. All right, Ray Harkins, welcome to Adventures in Design. <laughs> when podcasters interview podcasters, it's always, uh, I feel it's two worlds colliding, but then it's like the, the biggest thing that I had in my head coming over here, yeah. where I was just like, all right, because you know, I've had uh, many friends on the show, right? and it was one of those things where it was like, all right, well, like those are people who, who talk, but don't do what we do. Right. And I was like, we're probably going to talk over each other a lot, but... At the same time, I was just like, but I, I, we know how to listen, too, I hope. Well, I've learned to wait for the spaces to talk and also the time to interject. Like, I, like the first couple of years, I wanted to be polite, and I didn't want people to be like, that guy talks too much, or he doesn't let his guests talk. And so I sort of learned the dance a little bit. And I also learned that I write questions for when I don't have anything to talk about. Right. But if I can keep a conversation going, mm-hmm. then I'll bail on the questions. And I remembered I interviewed this guy, Chris Parks from Florida, uh, who does work under the name Pale Horse. Okay. Strange fact for your listeners. Um, he named his company Pale Horse, which is a biblical reference. And his goal was when people would go to Google that he would rank higher than higher. the Bible. <laughs> That's perfect. You yeah. got to have those intentions. So Chris is a rad guy. He's become a, a, a subscriber of the show and, and a friend through the show. But he is a wild man to talk to. And that was the interview where I literally finally got the confidence to close the book, sit back, listen, let him like run out of what he was talking about, and then just think, I'm only going to get like five questions in. So how do I reset the table and send this guy? In a different direction. Yeah, and we ended up having one of the best conversations ever where I, a 40-year-old man who's been straight edge his entire life, never even dabbled, is getting such a great conversation about using LSD and going different places in your mind. Right. And it is the conversation that I'm so proud of because it's like you can be straight edge and not be assuming or pretentious. We all have our own things. And that I was really proud of that interview that I had learned that I'll be here tomorrow. This is his episode. Where he wants to go, baby. Let's go. I think an advantage that you have, though, Ray... And one of my comments I made to myself is, don't be a bully. Sure. Share. I need to share. Right. But I think one of the advantages that you have over me is that you interview people 
that are largely used to talking and being interviewed and, and communicating uh, with a microphone in their hands. A lot of the people that I talk to, it's their first ever verbal interview, their yep. first ever podcast, the first time ever really kind of thinking about why they do what they do on paper or in business or online. Um, so I kind of envy you, but you do have a, a career downside is you don't want to get the speech from the stage. Oh no, I don't. Yeah. The, getting, it's funny because I, I, ne- I try to never interview people during like their quote unquote press cycles. Like if they're promoting a new oh, record. Oh yeah. When it's talking points. Dude. Because honestly, it's like, I, I, that's I, smart of you. I know going into it that I'm going to get 20 minutes of them feeling protected and guarded about, right. you know, because they're, 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 I'm a name on a schedule. Right. That's all that, that's all that I am to them. Right. Unless I know them personally, obviously. But if I'm able to break that down and be like, all right, like I distinctly remember interviewing uh, Frank from Hatebreed, the guitarist Hatebreed, who yeah. played Ringworm, like, you know, this dude is a lifer. Yeah. But I could tell where it was like, you know, 15, 20 minutes into it, all of a sudden, I literally felt a shift in the conversation where he was like, oh, yeah, I'm talking to, like, a fellow, like, hardcore kid. Like, you know, we're on the same level. It wasn't like, yeah. oh, so talk to me about how sick your riff is and that, like, kill me. He yeah. doesn't want to answer that question. Yeah. I don't want to ask that. And so it is, uh, it is interesting to be able to, like, navigate those things. And then on the same note of what you're talking about where it's like, I do have to convince people to come on the show. Like a person who you are good friends with, and I'm fairly certain has been on your show at some point, Dave Quiggle. Okay. I don't know if you if you're familiar with him at all, or I okay. I think he he's he, he's part of the the Wonderland exhibit that you recently did. Oh yeah, yes, yeah. yes, yes. So I don't anyways, know any of the other Wonder no Wonderground uh, artists. It'd be um, so. Anyways, he's he uh, Christian hardcore kid. Oh Hopefully. yeah, he wouldn't do our show either. Right. Okay. He doesn't want to talk. No, dude. So, and, and the reason being, like, I was able to get him on my show, yeah. ultimately, because, I mean, I've known him for a long time, um, and he, he ultimately was like, I, I, I trust you. Not to say that he doesn't trust you, but... He doesn't. It, okay, he doesn't trust you. <laughs> but, well, yeah, clearly he said no. But I had to, like, you know, I went over to his house, and it, it was the same thing what you're talking about, where he's just like, I'm not comfortable expressing myself in, pub- in a public forum. Wow. But I was like, trust me. Like, I will walk you through this to where you will feel hopefully comfortable and you'll be able to like actually enjoy the experience because I yeah. think at the end of the day, you and I are obviously trying to serve people by obviously helping them express their story, whatever it is they're trying to do. But ultimately, like they want to walk away being like, "That was a really good time." The first thing I ask everybody when the mics go off, "Did you have fun? Was yeah. it a good time?" And I, I kind of learned early in as I was doing this and feeling like I was getting better at it that if I could get people to feel like they were having a conversation with a friend yeah. and I, you know, I've had to talk to a couple of publicists probably not as many as you have, but I I've tried to say, look, and, and this was the thing when I was dealing with Santa Cruz to get my hero, Jim Phillips on the show. I was like, all right, let me just tell you, let me just be honest with you. I'm going to give the guy five minutes or I'm going to be a fan, but then the conversation will shift into Jim and I being coworkers, which is a little crazy for me because he's the guy that I saw uh, his first one of his skateboard graphics in 1984. Mm-hmm. That's the moment, Ray, that I got on the path right. of punk rock. Like, he's the guy that made the sign that said, this way. That was your inflection point. Yes. Yes. And so I had to bring that up and just thank the man. Right. But then I had to turn that off and become, I know what it's like to work till 2 a.m. because you got to get it done by 8. And it was interesting to see my hero knew all of the same grinds in the career that I did. So my goal is always to tell people like, dude, don't worry about the interview. Right. I don't ever tell anybody what we're going to talk about. I don't give them a bullet point. We're going to talk about <laughs> yeah, this. It's right. always a surprise because I want it to be organic and natural, but I always tell them, you know, your life story 
and I'll do all the rest. Sure. That's all you need to know is your opinions and your experiences. Right. And there's only been a couple of times where I had to stop and be like, just so you know, you're kind of giving me the AIGA hired to speak at a college speech. Oh, of course. Let's get you personal feel, you, here. Yeah, you, you feel that instantaneously. Like when you've done it, like you're mentioning, when you've done it long enough to where you can, you can feel – that like it's a, it's such a weird reaction that I have internally where it's right. just like you feel like you want to no 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 just like you want to interrupt the person and be like yeah. no, no 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 it's it's fine you don't need to say that I'm gonna ask you a different question or whatever. Have you ever talked to somebody who's a a real linear thinker and they have an idea of where they want the interview to be? So you ask them a question and yep. they go yeah. And then they go right back in the timeline. So it was 1988. <laughs> right, And right. I got my first Les Paul. Sure. And you're just like, you motherfucker. Yeah, like, yeah, I'm trying to dance with you. <laughs> totally. We can, we can skip around here. Like, even though I try to walk people through their lives, we don't yeah. have to do that. But, yeah, yeah I, I've never run too much into a problem of a person. I've never honestly felt like I, I've, like you were mentioning before, like, you know, getting bullied or the conversation's hijacked. There are moments where I'm just like, okay, like, I can't stop this. Right. Like, and this is getting, you know, we're going to uninteresting places in my mind. Like, right. if I'm bored in the interview, I can only imagine what <laughs> yeah. the person who is listening yeah. is probably feeling the same thing. Uh, but fortunately, I, I haven't run across people like the, um, I, I distinctly remember I, I had to jump through a lot of hoops in regards to getting uh, Sam McFeeders from Born Against. Okay, The cool. lead vocalist. Who I first twelve inch I ever bought at a show was the Born Against. Uh, what is it? Nine patriarch, twelve patriarch. Anthems. Yeah, 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 twelve. Yeah, yeah. And I took it home and I put it on the record player. Yep. And you know when you put the record down, the center of the record goes through Christ's hand. Right. Like you're you're putting the, the stake, the nail through Jesus's hand. Totally. And my dad walked by and he saw the record spin around with Jesus's hand. He goes, "Man, you're into something." Like and he just <laughs> kept going. And my dad was always cool that he's like, "I'm going to let this kid have rock and roll." Right. Because when he was a kid, he loved Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Okay. He didn't, he didn't know it was LSD. Right. You know, so my dad was always cool that way. But yeah, anyways, Born Against that was one of my entry points. Yeah. No, and it was I was so into intimidated because i was like okay like i mean clearly he's an opinionated person and he's pranked phil donahue dude exactly <laughs> i mean he, he's had a feud with sick of it all like yeah. th- his reputation clearly preceded him so i was like i don't want uh, the last thing that i hate to have and i know that you also focus on this in your show where it's like you hate to have you know either people who are overly nostalgic about like oh that shit was awesome back then right it's terrible now right and then also the notion of being old and cranky like right. I hate that, you know, that just gives me that sort of bile gut reaction of just like, oh, oh, like I'm, I'm old by definition of the music scene that we part- both participate in. Yeah. But I don't have that thought. Anyways. The cool thing about old and cranky is though, uh, Ray, <laughs> the is cool, that. The, I like this. You're like, let me prep it. The cool thing about it. <laughs> but the cool thing about old and cranky is, is that nobody is like everybody kind of got together and decided that none of us were going to grow up. So all the bands that we were raised on, uh-huh. there's, you could still go see them play. So sure. Old and Cranky is like a scene right. within the scene. And, and, you know, the Toys R Us Kids song has kind of became like everybody's fucking Peter Pan these days. Yeah. Can I cuss on your show? Absolutely. All right, cool. Um, so it, it's interesting to me that you can complain about what's happening today in music or you can kind of just stay in your class because it's still there. The pipe's still on. Right. And it's still you, running. Europe, it, Europe is still there for, for bands yeah. to tour, tour <laughs> twice a year and make their proverbial living off of that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> the, um, but then I, I had to literally write Sam a letter. Yeah. A, a letter. And with a self-addressed stamped envelope, I was like, okay, this is never going to work. Right. He emails me. And I was like, he's like, yeah, that actually sounds cool. I would like to do that. 
And I just felt so, like, I, in a way, I was like, I felt gypped. Like, I sent you a stamp. Like, I expected you to write me, like, a physical letter back if I right. was, like, writing you a letter. But anyways, I was really nervous going into that conversation. But he was super pleasant, wasn't old and jaded, wasn't, um, you know, overly nostalgic. He was actually, like, totally just shitting on everything he had ever done. We're just like, yeah, Born Against isn't even a big thing. Like, whatever. I can't even believe people still talk about it. And, like... It was just so unbelievable to be like, oh, you're just so present in what you're doing now. Yeah. And it's, it was obviously heartening from that perspective. What do you do to um, stay away from a fatigue with your listeners where, like, the one thing I would never ask you about right. is growing up being in a band. <laughs> because every one of my male guests was in a fucking band at some sure. point. Uh, I don't, you know, there's, I look at people's bios, and I, I say this a lot, and I probably annoy my listeners, but I just want to let them know what I'm going for is I look at people's bios and I try to focus in on what makes them unique compared to other guests. Okay. Because you do the linear thing where you go back to childhood and you sort of ride shotgun on the moment that they're standing on stage that night. Right. Is there anything that you do where you're like, oh, fuck, we're getting into the I didn't fit in in high school part. Do you try to speed along or pace it? Do you ever get worried? that Because so many of us really do have a similar Spider-Man origin story. Yep. You know, everybody's fucking uncle died on the sidewalk and said, great power, great responsibility. Of course. We were all raised by our fucking aunt. Right. We all fell in love with the girl. We had to pick her or the universe. Which one's more important? Right. I'm going to go with the girl every time. Fuck the universe. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I, I'm going to be <laughs> selfish on that one. Yeah. yeah. I'm the most selfish Spider-Man there ever was. <laughs> But no, is there anything that you ever do where you're like, oh, fuck, we're kind of drifting into the usual waters here? Or do yeah. you just think that there always will be a unique thumbprint on those experiences? Uh, it's, I mean, honestly, that's a very, very good question. I do. I'm not overly concerned about... I'm not overly concerned about that because the uh, I guess the the wider variety of guests that I have because I have people who are currently participating in the music scene and right. touring and doing it and right. then I have people who aren't touring anymore that maybe may have played in a band that most people are like dude that band's fucking terrible like what I, right the singer of Avenged Sevenfold like most people look at that band are just like they're atrocious they're butt rock whatever a- every opinion you possibly have but he, people that hear his like you said, Spider-Man story, realize that it's just like, oh, yeah, he's like exactly the same as me. He just found like Blind Guardian and Minor Threat at the same time. It just right. happened to be that way. Right. So I think uh, to me, I don't um, fast forward through a lot of that unless it is like just like, OK, like all right, I get it. You're, you're saying a lot of the same stuff. But you'd be surprised. A lot of people are just like, yeah, high school was rad. Like, yeah. I, I wasn't picked on. It was super fun, and I really enjoyed that experience. Do you find that's a generational thing, though? Because for some of us, being the first punk rocker at your high yep. school, I mean, I got the fucking shit beat out of me. Yeah. I mean, I actually was like... Well, were you, were you like, you know, were you like Liberty Spike Mohawk? You were obviously calling attention to your punkness? Man, I was as punk as my parents would let me be, and that's not very punk. Okay. <laughs> but I was outside of the box enough uh-huh. to get attention called to myself, um... And, you know, I went through a lot of, um, I was an ally before I knew being an ally was a thing, but there were kids in my school that were gay and I just wasn't going to deal with them being treated like second class citizens because when in the history classes, Uh when I saw those disgusting white motherfuckers down in Alabama saying no black kids in our school and out there protesting with their signs, I thought to myself at some point in my life, I'll be given an opportunity to be on the right side of history. Mm -hmm. And when, you know, sexuality became uh, a thing in school and you would see people immediately, a friend of mine, his name's Story, I'll out him, um, he was clearly somebody who was born gay. 
I mean, that was just, it wasn't a lifestyle decision. It was the way he was wired. And he loved the dude. He was a great guy. And he was not going to take up for himself. Mm-hmm. But motherfucker, I was. Right. And I was not going to let it go down. And I even got into a lot of trouble once because I had a uh, black teacher who was saying homophobic things. And I called him out on just what a complete contradiction yeah. that was. Right. And boy, he did not like me comparing a gay man to being a black man in America. Um, and it got really dodgy really quick. But that's I was young. I had an innocent mind. And I saw different people would have that bond or that empathy with one another. Right. And I didn't realize it was like, no, motherfucker, I'm on my own raft. You get off of this raft. <laughs> totally. I'm trying to make the black guy raft get to the shore. I don't need any gay people holding my raft down. Right. But, you know, that's the innocence of being young and just be like, well, you two guys clearly are treated differently, so there should be a bond there. Right. And, you know, not all prisoners want to get together and, and come up with a plan to get out of the prison together. Sure, you know? sure. So, um, yeah, I wasn't like overly like the GBH leather jacket. Right. But I was punk at heart, and um, I would eventually get kicked out of my high school for too much fighting. Um, and it was all down to being different. And the real twist in it all is my dad at the time, his opinion was, well, if you're going to – I won't say the quotes because I don't want to disparage my dad. Okay. But if, uh, <laughs> if you're going to dress – like a certain type of person. Sure. And you're going to act like a certain type of person. You're going to get treated like a certain type of person. Mm-hmm. So you're getting everything that you fucking asked for. So don't come crying that you get your ass whipped and you got jumped again. Because sure. this is everything that you wanted. It's practical advice he was giving you. In a very way that didn't seem practical. Like, oh, Dad, no. yeah. you're defending the bullies. Sure. But um, that was punk rock back then. Right. I, the quote that I throw around on the show a lot is the great Mike Ness who's a little bit of a character at this point in his life. Of course. But I do love that when he'll play one of the older songs from like the Another State of Mind era, he's like, you know, this is a song back in a time before you could go to the mall and get your pussy pierced. Right. And I just love how flashy that sentence is. It is. And I love that even though I'm not first-gen U.S. punk rocker, uh, I'm 89 to 93 is my high school years. Okay. So I'm before Nirvana. Right. I'm before grunge. Uh, the hardcore band Endpoint that were my heroes that would become my best friends, roommates, and peers, I would get picked up from school on a Friday. I would go load all the equipment in the van with my friend Andy Tinsley. And while everybody else that weekend was going to, to you know, parties, parties or whatever, and getting yeah. drunk, I was on tour with a punk rock band. Yeah. And I would tell my mom and dad, like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to go stay at Dave Cook's house, a.k.a. Bone Thrower. And I would be in Columbus, Ohio, which is like, you know, sure. 300 or... 250 miles away from where I live. Like, I was sneaking off to go on tour with bands when I was in high school. Right. That was my big rebellious thing. So um, I always found a, a place in the scene. I always found love in the scene. But I wasn't a flashy call action to myself type of guy. Yeah. But the message was true. In me. <clears throat> but I, lo- I love the, the point that you hit on because I think that even though whether a person had a positive experience where like they weren't picked on in high school the notion of you feeling like you're a part of something that like no one else understands where it's like that that was always what was so charming to me where it was like when i started because i started touring in my band when i was uh so it was like 96 or so so i was like 16 are you from california southern california yes well i was born in vegas which is weird because it's not a real city no well Correct. Well, I mean, yeah, it's a real city, but it's just weird because obviously people are just like, oh, yeah, either retired or you're a degenerate. Like, right. Those are the only two right. options there. Um, but most of my time was spent in Southern California. 
But once I started to tour, it was definitely one of those things like, you know, you, whatever, you're, like you mentioned, your friends are participating in typical high school activities. I was thinking about booking shows for my band just in the same way that you were. Yeah. Um, where, and like booking a summer tour where people were just like, what the fuck are you talking about booking a summer tour? It's like, yeah, we're going to play like a bunch of horrible shows and drive across America and it'll be awesome. Yeah. And th- that didn't, the, that notion didn't obviously not make sense to your, your, your normal person. Um, and I think to me, that was like, regardless of if you were picked on or not, you felt like you were just like, dude, I'm going against the quote unquote stream. Like people are not understanding it. My parents aren't understanding. Right. <laughs> My quote unquote peers aren't understanding it. The only people that understand it, like you said, is the proverbial scene because that's, you're just like, oh, that's just what you do. And at that time, uh, it was like finding a family oh, yeah. where, you know, you had all these, you know, you had basically, you know, the Louisville, Kentucky scene, which birthed me, you had all of the six to eight kids in all their different high schools that didn't fit in could come together on a Tuesday night, see shelter play for five bucks at 6.30 p.m. on a fucking like Thursday. Yeah. And... That was our high school. That was where everything that wasn't normal seemed completely fucking normal. And there was the cool guy in that scene. There was the nerds in that scene. Like, and imagine that, being a nerd in the punk scene, that's right. like meta. That's like deep, <laughs> deep, totally. deep. But it was its own scene. And the greatest thing that ever happened to me is my first three years in uh, high school, ninth, 10th, and 11th grade, three of the most miserable years of my life. However three of the most important character building years of my life. Mm-hmm. I would get in so many fights. I would ultimately end up, I've never talked about this on the show. The last day of my junior year in high school, um, I brought tear gas to school and I maced a couple of bullies that we had gotten into so many fights right. that they got the call that, Hey, you're not graduating cause you don't have enough hours in your fucking welding program. Okay. Uh-huh. That's the type of guys I'm dealing with that are going to high school and learning how to weld at the same time. Right. If you catch my drift. Sure. Um, so they got the news that they weren't graduating and then they were going to blame it on me that they spent all their time bullying me. So they're going to take it out on me because right. Like I was the cause. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. You were the, you were the primary cause. But I had decided that enough was a fucking enough, right. and I wanted a competitive edge, and I had been getting jumped so many times that they caught me in the hallway in between classes. Um, I had a deal where I could show up a little bit late because I, I was in the arts program, which is on the far side of this high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was like being a good student out in between classes, and they're like, hey, you know, we're going to... We're going to fucking jump you. And, and I knew the way that it went down. Sure. And so I literally was like, today's my fucking day. It's not going to happen to me today. Right. I pulled the tear gas out uh, and I maced the first guy and then I maced the second guy. And what happens is this rusty like water that looks like a, like a party bottle that people have been putting cigarettes in. Oh, you know, sure. Like yeah, that yeah. rust, like shit water. The worst thing you could ever imagine. That comes out and it takes about 30 seconds for mace to kick in. I would like for you to know it was the longest 30 seconds of my teenage years. I can imagine. Because I'm like, holy fuck, I got a bad bottle. Right. It's this not, didn't work. This didn't work. <laughs> and the, now I'm going to get the ass whooping of a lifetime. Totally. But when it kicked in, boy, did it fucking kick in. And then I had a competitive edge over these three bullies that we had been in over a dozen fights. Um, I would be skateboarding at night and they would pull up, bully me take my skateboard, put it in their trunk, and then I would have to walk home without my skateboard. Sure. Uh, it had gotten really, really brutal. Uh, I would definitely qualify to be a little monster for Lady Gaga. Mm-hmm. And um, 
so basically anyways, that was my competitive edge. And I really, and so at the end of that year, my dad just said, I'm fucking done with you. I am, you don't fit in. You don't like it. You want to go over in fucking Louisville where everybody's a fucking hippie. You want to go be like all the other people that I won't mention. Sure. It was like, just fucking go over there and just do that. And so my senior year in high school, I was on my own and I went from last place to first place. I was a nerd at the other school. I was popular, but nobody liked me because I was the punk rocker Right at my senior year in high school. It was 90210, and I was fucking Dylan. I was the coolest guy in my high school. (laughs) There was kids wearing my fucking band's T-shirt. Right. I became a bit of a womanizer because guess what? Women finally liked me. They started to pay attention to you, of course. And so I took a lot of popularity, and I ran with it, and I did what everybody does. Uh, I got high on my own supply. I became a fucking worthless asshole in about two years, and I had to sort of reconstruct myself from that shot at greatness but fuck man for a year a senior living on his own oh teacher you're gonna threaten me yeah or what or what i'm gonna come home and ground myself because you left a message on my voicemail fuck you totally i can't touch me i got this but you know i really ray i'm really lucky that i was trench coat mafia before it was trench coat mafia because in today's world i would have went to a federal penitentiary for what i did no absolutely that that is a because obviously that was very uh, deliberate on your part this was uh, you know fully intentional you were well aware of what was happening um i mean obviously i I think most people that hear that story would completely understand voice of the voiceless of course you (laughs) that's perfect perfect reference (laughs) the i i was uh, since you mentioned louisville i was obsessed with louisville louisville Louisville. Thank you. I, you, you know, you, you're allowed to say that. I'm not allowed to say that because I'm not from there. Thank you. Uh, um, I was obsessed with it. Like, cause honestly with initial records, the initial record, the initial records catalog and Vic- victory magazine, like yeah. when they were all those catalog, very distro, all those things were so huge for me because it was like, it was obviously a place for me to like, Oh, I, the only way I'm going to understand this music is by reading this description. Right. And when you guys started to include logos, in regards to the descriptors of the music. We had a little icon set yes. for every record. So if it was a pentagram, then that meant that they liked Slayer. Totally. And if there were, you know, I forgot what, the, there, was, there was like glasses that meant that it was emo friendly. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we had all kinds of, but what there, we, there was like, there was like six or seven symbols that were just right. still, and these symbols could apply to multiple, um, uh, like this, the same band can have like six symbols. And then you're just like, oh, dude, like this probably is pretty good. Yeah, it's like they're kind of emo, but kind of metal. I want to totally. check this out. Like, I'm what super are they into doing this. Here? Yeah. Right, right. Uh, and th- so the catalogs that we made at the time, this is before the internet. We, we made a record, uh, we made a catalog for our distribution initial records. And we actually tried to listen to the records and put at least one or two witty or funny sentences in there. Mm-hmm. And it really became like a lifestyle catalog. And, um, you know, Andy Rich, who started that company, one of my um, best friends for life, I really feel bad for the guy because he is uh, the dude from Friendster. Sure. You know, he is the guy that came up with everything just six years oh, he's too early. Totally. Way, way in advance. Yeah. Because the thing is, is, I mean, even at my 16 or 17-year-old brain, understood that what you guys were doing was totally separate from everything else. Like you said, when you mention it as being a lifestyle thing where it's just like, oh, yeah, like I get to look at a cute girl in a fast break T-shirt? Yeah. Sick. Like, yeah. I, but I, didn't, I would never have got that anywhere else. And they were cute girls in the sense they were the type of girls you would see at a hardcore at a show, show that would melt your heart. They weren't cheerleaders. They were no. hardcore girls. Right. But there was a magic moment when you went to shows and you're like, 
oh, I can choose this lifestyle and I'm not going to have to just be on a dude train forever. Like there are girls that like this. Right. And then those girls, because you knew that they, they weren't just, I do hair and makeup. They liked the music. They were part of the scene. They were vegetarian. They were vegan. They might be straight edge. It was a woman that for the first time in your life, you could have a real in-depth conversation with. They got you and you got them. And the music was your bond. Mm -hmm. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. No, dude. It, like I, and that was the reason why it was so special to me because those were, those were my entry points. Because like I didn't – I went to like a small Lutheran high school. So it was one of those things where – I love Luther. Dude, it's amazing how on that TV show – I mean, he's a guy from Baltimore. He sounds like a real British guy on Luther. It's unbelievable. Um, the, and I didn't have, like, you know, I had to create my, I had to enlist my friends to like this style of music. Yeah. It wasn't one of those things like, you, had you to know, recruit. Totally. It wasn't yeah. pre-built in. It was just like, you know, me doing the, the hard work or whatever. And then, but then it's like, once I started to get these catalogs and obviously start to see that it was just like, oh my gosh, like. Louisville has a scene and then just like, oh, dude, Philly has a scene. Like all these things I started to notice and yeah. it was just like it brought me to places mentally that I never thought I would have even thought about where it's just like, you know, why would anybody know about Louisville, Kentucky? That's like, you know, 15 years old that lives in California. Oh, because there's great bands from there. And do you know that right now you just made me so happy because knowing that I was part of something. Mm hmm that gave a kid in Southern California a fantasy of, man, Louisville, everybody knows everybody, and it's totally. like a clubhouse, and they, and they all hang out, and they do things together. You have no idea what that means to my heart because I grew up looking at Thrasher Magazine thinking Southern California was it. Totally. That was heaven. That totally. was heaven on earth. And, you know, I've lived here now for uh, almost three years, and I still can't wait till I can learn how to take California for granted. Right. Because every day I'm like, I can't fucking You're believe like, this, this is my is life. So Dude, I've, li I've lived here for most of my life. And I still, there, there are at least one or two moments a day where it's just like, <laughs> well, I would ever live anywhere else. Like, yeah. Especially with all the touring that both you and I have done. You see other places where you're just like, yeah, it'd be cool to spend, you know, like a few days there. Yeah. But then, yeah, I'm going to go back to Southern California. Well, I now joke that. You know, now that I live out here, yep. people don't pay me to speak on stage. They don't pay me to do the show live. Right. They pay me to leave California. So that's what the fee's for. Of course. And uh, I, I love it out here. And you, you're right. It, it's a weird. Um, I remember living in other parts of the country, whether mm -hmm. it be Buffalo, even Toronto, or when I lived in Louisville. Um, getting on a plane meant you're going someplace magical. Of course. And now going on a plane means I'm going someplace not as good as where I'm at. <laughs> totally. And that's a real weird mind fuck. It uh, is. And I really understand why rock stars, you know, complain about touring. Because when you're a kid, you're like, how could you complain about being stuck with three days off in Paris? Well, I understand why. Because you got a really great house in Malibu and you'd like to be there to see it every now and again. You know what I mean? Of course. It all starts to click and make sense. I also learned that um, as a representative of the state of California, it is not my responsibility to tell you how great my life is, but to make you feel better about yours. Sure. People really don't want to hear about California. No, no. Well. Their eyes glaze over. It, the, I, I mean, I think once a person like comes out here and visits it, then they want to participate in that discussion. Right. But it's like if they're if that is just like a twinkle in their eye, they're like, I'm never going to get there. That's when their eyes glaze over. They're just yeah. like, I can't even listen to this yeah. because it is some weird fantasy world where it's just like, yeah, does it doesn't. What do you mean you live 15 minutes from Disneyland? Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, I, I do. What is epic and a, and a milestone yeah. in some people's life? Oh yeah, is Thursday for me. Sure. 
It's fucking. It's totally. unreal. And I and I'll like I will never not walk through the gates of Disneyland right. and not get a lump on my throat that I'm a kid from a shitty neighborhood from a shitty town that was never ever supposed to become an illustrator for Disneyland. Like right. that was never ever in the fucking cards. No, I had the worst art teachers ever. I hated all of them except for Mr. Underwood. Props, Mr. Underwood, <laughs> and my college professor Barry Motes. But in elementary school, Miss Skaggs. So Miss Skaggs. This is this is fifth grade me talking. So don't judge me, people. No, no. I'm, sp- I'm the rule with my show for Ray's listeners is I would rather you hate me for being honest than love me for being a fake. I will never be a fake. And so in fifth grade, we had an art teacher, Miss Skaggs, and Miss Skaggs was part of the space program. She was like five teachers away from being on the space shuttle Challenger that blew up. Wow. Yeah. Um, but I hated her so much because I loved art, but she made me resent art. Let's pretend that erasers were never invented. No, fuck you. I want an eraser. Right. Like, I want my stuff to be good, not lame. Let's not pick up our pencils and, and keep the line going. No, fuck you. Like, I'm good enough to know to pick up the pencil because that will make the, the drawing right. Yeah, they, were, they were like exercises in endurance. So that space shuttle blows up, right? Sure. And we watched it live on TV. Big moment in my life. Mm-hmm. And I told her I wished that she was on the space shuttle. Brutal. And I don't regret saying it. Sure. Because she really took... Something you loved into, yeah, misery. She was, she was not understanding what an elementary age person needed. And I had a lot of trouble in my life. I was going through a divorce. I had a mom that left me. I got sent home from school one day because I got dropped off in such bad condition. They're like, this kid needs like yeah, to be cared you, for. Sure. So I had some real troubled time. And art was an outlet. And she made me resent... My, my, the one sanctuary you had. Yes, thank you. Yeah. And man, you are good at this. Thanks. And so, um, she made me resent that. Uh-huh. And boy, you tell somebody you wish they were on a spatial blown up, you're going to get sent home for the day. Yeah. Clear, <laughs> clearly, that relationship uh, will take some mending if you care about it. Or it's going to go the opposite way and you will never ever be in that safe place with that person again. But that's fine. You didn't care. No, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't care. And I, I mean, you know, that's, I mean, somebody at home's listening is going, oof. Dude, that's th- my brutal honesty. Yeah, man. no, no. Well, I mean, I th- yeah, I, I think that. I mean, especially when you're putting it in context like you're doing it, it's just like, well, yeah, of course. Like, that's yeah, maybe brutal, but you know, it's, like you said, it's honest. So, Ray, you interview a lot of people in the music scene, um, and when I listened to you interview Toby, mm-hmm. I was um, kind of blown away, and kind of thought it was sweet, for lack of better terms, that you allowed yourself to be a fan in that interview. Mm-hmm. Like you allowed yourself to be like, I'm a guy hanging out with Toby and this guy means a lot to me. Sure. And to me, that was a pretty interesting move that you didn't try to play it interview. Cool. That, you know, like I'm from Rolling Stone and I'm going to break you down, <laughs> Toby Morris. So tell me about your decision to, on your show to just be so honest and to let go and just to fan out if you want to. Yeah. No, I think cause I ultimately, I just view, I, I view whatever I'm trying to accomplish with that person as just just ultimately making that that human to human connection. Mm-hmm. And so many people have been pivotal in you know I mean similar to what I just did with you 20 minutes ago where yeah. it's just like talking about the initial catalog like there's no way that I could sit in front of you and not just be like that was fucking huge for me dude. <laughs> 
so in the same fashion that it's just like these people that I'm able to uh, build a relationship with and they yeah. trust me with their time because yeah. ultimately at the end of the this is not a renewable resource. You and I didn't need to do this. Right. We don't need to do these things, but we find meaning in it. So I want to make sure that that person obviously feels that value out of it and know that I genuinely appreciate what that they what they have done and not in just like this like pie in the sky, like I really love your first seven inch. Like, yeah, I, I don't want to get so hyper specific that it makes the person feel uncomfortable. Right. Um, but I want to, which wanna... is a career, uh, casualty you got to watch out for. Yeah. Um, but then I want to make sure that the person knows that like, I, I re- not only do I respect your time, but I respect your work. And like, we're just going to have this experience as opposed to me, like having some other hidden agendas in in whatever conversation right. I'm trying to do. So it's, it's a, it's definitely a fine balance that you you walk, like you mentioned. But uh, I just always try to be, you know, m- mostly just honest with myself. Or I'm just like, if I were to go in there and not mention anything to anybody, and just like act like an indifferent person, like I'm just interested in interviewing you. Yeah, I'm, you know, Johnny Two Bags on Tumblr. Like I'm every average person who has done an interview that's right. talking about their most recent record. It's boring to them. That's not why I do this. The focusing on the recent record thing can be a little exhausting because what I've learned. Um, Somebody who's been in a recording studio for, you know, 10 days and knows what it's like that every hour is costing somebody (laughs) a hundred bucks that fucks with your mind. Uh, When you hear a band, I hear this a lot on Sirius XMU, which is what I'll listen to when I'm in the car and I feel like listening to new music, Mm -hmm. you know, the indie rock shit. Sure. And I hear this a lot. Working on our last album was really hard. And I think I've done a lot of shit in my life, but working on an album is not technically hard work right it's fun it's emotional draining but to qualify it as hard work and to define it as hard work it's like no i had to dig ditches for construction yeah. it's you're that not working shit, in the, right you're not working in the coal hard. mine yeah. so i do like that you talk more about the emotion of it because there is a way where people that have really great jobs can talk about those jobs in a way where it sounds like they're saving lives right and that can be a little fatiguing to the listener and a little bit of a turnoff. Um, and I like that you do go after the human element and not so much the, you know, the production element of things. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important point because I think not, not ever, well, many people don't get to pursue stuff that they're passionate about or if they do. Yeah. Or if they do, they have to do it on the side, which is obviously fine. And like, as long as they don't shut that part off, like that's when it becomes sad. But it's like you, you, if you're if you're getting up there and talking about whatever cool pursuit that you are doing that other people want to do as well, that's what, like you said, it just becomes fatiguing. It's just like, oh, shut the fuck up, dude. Yeah. Like, aren't you thankful for this? Aren't you right. thankful? And then right. that's when it, you, yeah, you just you sound incredulous, incredulous, whatever. I don't. Know. I would never know. I think that <laughs> part of what you set them up for is because you're so excited about what they're doing, it allows them to tap into that excitement and to sure. share the excitement. Um, whereas on my show, there's a lot of focus on the pain and the process because I feel like, you know, having been a guy in a band and being part of the entertainment industry, um, from a corporate side for years, uh, I really feel like that the visual artist gets the shit end of the stick in the creative world. It's always like, we're going to spend, you know, a million dollars on this record. Yep. We're going to make it part of our strategic rollout. We're going to make a video. We're going to do a tour. We're going to make all this stuff happen. And, oh, yeah, we need to spend like $5,000 to make somebody put a package on it. Right. And so there's this poor fuck 
who dreamt of doing packaging design, gets the call. It's his favorite band. He or she feels like this is a moment in their career to make or break themselves. They get a little bit intoxicated by, well, this is going to be printed millions of times. So millions of people will know who I am. And they kind of get suckered into it. They get bullied into it. Ultimately, they hate the final product. And they just got this shit beat out of them. Totally. And meanwhile, everybody else in the process has an agent or a manager babysitting them. Because realizing creative people shouldn't be business Business people. people. Yeah, yeah. And so everybody's protected in the process except for the poor motherfucker that had to sit down and actually, what does this tour look like? Right. You know, um, most bands will make... In one hour, the first hour that they show up on a 60-day tour, that first hour, they will turn a profit that is what the designer made for all of the work. Oh, of course. So the next 999 hours of selling on tour is royalty-free. Mm-hmm. And then when they get off a tour and they license that design out to a merchandise company or Hot Topic, yep. that's just money on top it's of It's just money. gravy. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. It's free money, which I like to talk about. Of course. So I feel like part of what I do is to get into the pain and the suffering, the human experience. And what that's been really good at is people that are famous in the art world Mm -hmm. and people that are just out of school or in school realize that the struggle is real. It's not as glamorous as all these fancy websites make it seem. Of course. And we're sort of laying down the tracks of, well, how do you negotiate for more? And uh, the big theme on my show for the last year is fire your clients, work for yourself. Sure. You can make the best T-shirt when nobody tells you what to put on a T-shirt. You know, and there's people that are launching their own product lines. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, the, the hot water I get into, Ray, is I talk a lot of shit about the merchandising companies. Right. And the people that listen to the show go, fuck you, man. Like, I can draw a skull better than anybody. And they're right. They are very, very talented people. Sure. I'm not talking shit about their work. I'm talking shit about the process. And I, I care so much about them that I'm trying to be like, hey, dummy, you could make more money if you didn't work for these people on spec or give a band a $50 or $100 design right. when they're going to turn that profit over in 30 minutes. So I'm kind of... Uh, telling the, 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 the filth and the dirt of the industry, and we're all kind of finding bonds that we're not alone. But for you, you can't go that route because people have got music so glamorized that the hard part of music, nobody really wants to hear about because they feel like, well, fuck you. You're lucky to just be in a <laughs> Get band. up on stage, right. You know, right. you know what it's like to be in an arena full of people and to have them clap and, and to love you. Like, how dare you complain? So music's this thing that we've made precious. Sure. And I think that you've got to sort of treat it as the precious thing or you're going to, like, rub the listeners raw or get into the minutiae that people really don't want to hear about. Well, I think, I mean, it's, it's definitely similar to what you're talking about in regards to, I mean, it's just shining a light on, on certain certain businesses or practices that more people should obviously know about. Right. Because um, I, I do think it, it's it's something that is incredibly important, um, obviously, in what you're doing and then, like, what you're you're mentioning that I'm doing, where it's, like, it's a lot of... You, because you don't think of this stuff when you're, obviously, 16, 17 years old and, like, just putting your stuff together. You are right about that. You don't, like... You, you, I always joke where it's just, like, you know, whatever. You, you can almost point to every single, like, independent record label that you and I have had experience with or bought records from 
the person that started that was never like, dude, I can't wait to be a fucking boss, man. I yeah. can't, I can't wait to tell yeah. people. No one says that in our community. Like no one, no one's excited. About I feel that. like everybody accidentally fell into their position. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so then it's like, then it's just a matter of them hopefully being able to learn how to be a boss or then being able to surround themselves with people that will know how to do it for them. But that's, that's something, like I said, that you don't think about when you are uh, approaching it. Like when you're creating art, no matter what it may be, illustration, shirt designs, whatever, once you start to view that thing as obviously, you know, a a simple commodity, like I I distinctly remember when um, the, uh, like when Asterix Studio started to become, like basically they had so much stuff going on as far as bands wanting layouts. And that was what they were were doing. Punk Planet, Jade Tree, Asterix. That was a moment when design yeah. became another part of the scene. Totally. And there were guys like Norm from Texas of the Reason that yep. was like, dude, the design is very important. <laughs> yes. We're going to make our name really small. We're going to, you know, left justify it, and it'll make sense to you. Totally. And it was really where you could be in the scene, and you could be a designer, and you had the same respect as a label guy uh, or a drummer. People knew the names. Yes. Of the design, yes. either the designers or the design studios. And I just remember it was, um, and I'm not mentioning this to like slag off Asterix or anything, but be, Don and, and uh, I'm totally blanking on the other brother's name. Ryan. Yes, Don and Ryan Clark. Um, Who are now known as Invisible Creature. Exactly. They were, basically, they were, they saw how much work they were getting. So they were working in advance. Like I distinctly remember uh, really good friends with the guys in that band this day forward. Yeah who ended up doing some work for them on their last record on Equal Vision, they, uh, they were showing them proofs for other you know, ideas of concept as far as the layout was concerned for the record. And it was one of those things where I saw a piece that they had did for them. I saw that piece two years ago from another band, which mm-hmm. is like, you know, I mean, that's obviously common for artists to potentially do that. But it was one of those things where it was just like, it, again, it, it shined a light on a certain thing that I never considered where I was just like, oh, shit, like, if a band rejects this, they may use this, like, years yeah. later. But it was one of those things where it was just, like, I never would have thought about that. But it's, like, once you, the, the service that, you know, that, that you're doing in regards to shining the light on the grimy side of things is going to hopefully showcase, like, oh, yeah, like, if you are 16 or 17 and you are thinking about that, you're going to be ahead of the ball. You're going to be, you're going to be so far ahead of the game right. that it's all, all it's going to do is help you. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the... The, the greatest service about the podcast as a platform is that um, you and I don't have to worry about a ratings book. Yeah. We don't have to worry about um, you know shareholders or investors or am I going to do enough to get my three-year contract renewed. We're basically free. And what you're doing is you're giving uh, a kid who's 15 a shortcut to what it's like to be 25 and be in a band. Right. And you're pulling back a curtain that you could kind of see in the fanzine, but you couldn't really get it and hear the voice and hear the stories. And then that 15-year-old kid can decide, okay, I'm willing to suffer for music and it sounds glamorous, or, oh, fuck. Yeah. I think I'm better to go... I'm, I'm better as a photographer. Yeah, right. or I'm better to use this money that mom and dad set aside on a college education and just buy tickets and just enjoy music for, for mm-hmm. what it is. And I think for for me and Adventures in Design, it's taking um, pros and giving them a high five that, hey, we're all struggling, we're all at the same point. And for the young guys and and girls, it's a tremendous shortcut on these should be your realistic expectations. Totally. And I talk a lot on my show about making money. And sometimes people um, 
get confused and I'm talking about money in a, um, you know, masterpiece sense. Like, oh, make as much money, stack that paper, y'all get paid. Yeah, yeah. But I, I really think that it's important to, to point out that nobody that's been on my show is wealthy. I, I know what everybody makes because people love to tell me. And I think that I probably have the dude that makes the most money in the art world, in our scene, tapped out at, you know, the low six figures. Like, I think $300,000 is probably as much money as you could ever shoot for. Sure. Uh, So $300,000 is not fucking rich in in today's world. Totally. Not by a long shot. And, of course, it's all contingent on your expenses. Yes. (laughs) Because if you've got $5,000 a month monthly nut and you're making 300 grand, you're living like a king. Totally. But if you're bringing in three hundred and you've got a monthly nut of seventy thousand dollars, you're in a fucking world of hurt. Right. So, I I want people to understand that I look at money from a creative point of view. Money is what gives you freedom and more time to create. And so, therefore, by making yourself as profitable as possible, you are laying down a foundation to have more free hours to do the work that you want to do. And to do something that's more of a self-fulfilling prophecy versus a dead-end street. A dead-end street is working for a client, busting your ass, and getting paid $5,000 one fucking time. Right. Working for yourself gives you the ability to make $100,000 over the span of three or four years. You do that a couple of times, the next thing you know, you're making an easy $30,000, $40,000 in the background, which is what some people are tethered to a job for. 40 hours a week totally. to make a living off of. Of course. So I'm always just trying to let people know that it's not money in a hip-hop sense. You know, I don't have fucking platinum teeth over here. I wear an Apple Watch and a wedding band, and I feel completely blinged out. I'm not a jewelry guy. Right. But it's money is the freedom, and you got to get away from that coffee shop mentality of I do it because I love it. Newsflash. You can do what you love. And make a really good career at it. Absolutely. In fact, the most profitable you'll ever be in your life is following your love and your passion. There's just a couple of smart plays you got to make to make that happen. Totally. You have to be the... I've always traveled. I mean, I've never worked for myself. I have always been duly employed by... uh, organizations or record labels that I believed in. So this project is your part-time passion project. I do. Yeah. The, the money that I make off this is solely gravy. Everything, every ad I run, every sponsor I bring on is just like, that's spectacular. This is money that I'm able to either reinvest in the show, um, pay the person who produces and edits my show because I don't. You do don't edit myself. your own show? Absolutely not. You motherfucker! Uh, Get fig- out of here! I fig- Get- I fig- Born in California and you don't edit your own show? Get out of here! Shout out to Tom Richfield, my producer over in the UK. Spectacular gentleman. Tom, give me a call. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if he had time, I'd let I'd let him do that. Um, <laughs> I'd let him. Yeah, I'd what let him. I'd, I'd I'd let him off his leash. No, but the um. It, it, I've always, uh, because I I was playing in bands around yeah. the, around the time that bands started to become successful and start to kind of quote unquote cross over in regards to like actually being able to make a living when the internet exploded. Totally. So this was like because my original band Taken existed from ninety seven till about two thousand four, but during the entire time that we were together, there was never a notion that we were going to make a living off of this. Right. But I happened to find a job when I was twenty two years old. 
of working for Century Media Records. So it was one of those things where, but the, the la- I was able to convince the label that I still needed to obviously be an abandoned tour. This would benefit them because I was, Absolutely. Like, I was their A&R representative. You know, how we found, you know how Initial Records found out about the Get Up Kids and Boy Sets Fire and Ink and Dagger? Because my band was, was out on, on the tour. road exactly. meeting these people. 100%. Yeah. Super valuable. So I've always found the, the in pursuit of passion where it's just like all, all I say to people and like what I, my wife is a high school English teacher and I actually go to speak to a lot of her classes That's on awesome. a yearly basis. And I, I love it because I'm able to be like, Hey, take that thing you're passionate about, that thing you do on the weekend, the thing you do after school, and you can figure out a way to make money off. Absolutely. That. That's, That's what you were meant to do. That's And if you and I had a person getting in front of us in high school, telling us to do that, it would have been like, Oh, I, yeah, that's right. I can do that. No, you just had to, I just had to look at Ian Mackay. Sure. And do the math. <laughs> right. And figure out, oh, fuck. He didn't know that Straight Edge was going to go viral. No. He, he didn't know that he was going to invent indie rock. You know, he, he basically, in my opinion, he invented American hardcore and then invented the foundation for indie rock. Sure. He also invented the independent label and the DIY ethos of, like, those guys literally took a 45 ripped it apart, yep. traced it, glued it back together. And like, now we know how to make records. Right. But nobody told you that's what they did. You just had to do the math. Mm-hmm. You couldn't Google. You couldn't, you know, it was analog. Of course. But you're right because there's so much information right now telling you how to follow your pursuits. And, you know, the best thing, Ray, is that if you are true to yourself, you find what you're genuinely the best at. I got good news for you. You have zero competition sure because nobody can do what you do the way that you do it totally so if you can become the best at whatever your fucking thing is Mm -hmm. i'm pursuing it with this project i feel i've interviewed a lot of people that are now starting to oh maybe do my own podcast oh every the notion of doing your own podcast i mean that's it's a joke yeah it's a total joke where it's just like i view it i honestly view it as the what like Whatever, if you're looking at the early 90s when everybody started to obviously have the capabilities of filming things, right. everybody was asking everybody to be in their student film. Oh, you, you want yeah. to be That's exactly what podcasting is now. Where because the, the access to technology, where it's like it's $400 to get a digital recorder and two yeah. microphones, and then $12 a month to pay hosting fees, there's no barrier to entry to there. It's a matter of being like what I tell people that do say that same thing to me, where it's just like, oh yeah, I want to do my own show, or it's just like, like, well, what's your what's your corner? Like, what, what, yeah. what, what are you what are you trying to bring to the table? And yeah. of course, you're going to suck at it for a long time because everybody sucks at everything they do. When they, I mean, if they don't, then that's awesome and they found their gift. But right. the the yeah, the, anyways, the, the the podcasting idea where it just it just makes me laugh now. We're just like, oh, that's that's cute. You're doing it now too. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, you're doing it now. I have to also sort of give people a disclaimer when I meet them that I do it professionally. It's totally, you know, and that this is my full time job, uh, and that I'm the only guy that I know of who's not a celebrity that's yep. a full time podcaster, and that not a celebrity part is the tricky part of the equation, right? Because when you're not Mark Marin and you're not Adam Carolla, sure. and you want to do this full time. There, and, and iTunes will let you sell any piece of garbage through their pipeline except for what you and I make because mm-hmm. it's worthless. Um, it is a hard thing to figure out. But ultimately, the comment where I was going, where I see people like, oh, I'm going to do Like, I did it with Mark. It was fun. Why don't I do this for myself? I think that's awesome. I wish them the best of luck. And I will not allow it to bother me or feel competition because I'm like, I know I'm so good at doing a show that's all based around my personality sure and you know i have 
a lot of studying that went into becoming Mark from Adventures in Design. I spent 10 years being quiet, keeping my mouth shut, and just being an artist. I spent 10 years on the road being in a band. I was part of Initial Records. I was yep. the MC and one of the founding members of Crazy Fest. Like, I've got so much life experience that I can immediately bond with so many different people about so many different things because at one point in my life, I was them. Right, you did it. Right. I did it. And, and so to me, it's like I love how three-dimensional my show can be because I can always go back to my bag of tricks. And I sometimes hate myself at a dinner party because I'm like, you know what? Just shut up and don't tell everybody the story that you know that fits in here. <laughs> like let somebody else tell their marginally entertaining story because sure. you don't need to tell them that you fucking <laughs> – Yeah. The, oh, I did that times ten. Yeah, I'm the Jacques of bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, th- that was that actually segues perfectly into a question I was going to ask you, because you've uh, I mean it, it, the the bands you've played in you you've never and then obviously all the stories that you've been telling me thus far and clearly the concern that I had at the beginning of the show in regards to us talking over one another because we do ha- both of us have larger personalities yeah um, I know where mine comes from because I was an only child and of course I had to demand attention somewhere yeah you've never struck me as a person that has a small personality has that always been the case have you always been the person where it's just like hey look at me and like like a, and I don't mean that in a disparaging no, no. way I take no offense at all because that's what like I remember when it was like when uh, when the in Kindles, like when you guys were obviously yeah. tour, touring, and yeah. like the, your your presence in regards to, I mean, basically you, you were just John Reese Jr. from Rock well, Thank, you. thank you, you very much. And that was that was like the thing you were going for. And I saw that, and I was like, that's a very deliberate choice, and that that bums a lot of people out because you're not supposed to be that yeah. in our scene of like, hey, fucking look at me, I'm sick, I'm awesome. Yeah. Not like you were saying that exact thing, but anyways, yeah. my original question of just. Were you always that sort of big personality, for lack of a better term? Uh, my personality was a conscious decision I made for survival. Uh, I remember being in fifth or sixth grade, and this is me being real honest. I remember being in like fifth or sixth grade, and other guys were getting the attention of girls. Uh, I didn't like the budget that my parents had for clothing, so I realized I was never going to be able to impress people by the way that I dressed. Sure. Um, I wasn't really a good looking kid as compared to some of my friends. So I, um, I kind of studied TV a lot. Okay. And I came up with an idea that if I could have, this was deliberate. If I could be the funny kind of quirky guy that Mike Seaver was on Growing Pains. Oh, okay. And if I could mash that up with sort of the stoic coolness, not going to back down from anybody, Bruce Willis on Moonlighting, and if I could somehow use a blow dryer to get my hair up off my forehead like Johnny Depp in 21 Jump Street, sure. that I might be able to navigate the waters and make a character for myself. Uh, and so I still remember... One of the greatest moments in my life, it was a rainy day and it was summer, and I believe I was probably in like fifth or sixth grade, and we were stuck inside. And for whatever reason, there was like this box, and there was a bunch of like clothes or or rags around it because a friend of mine's mom did like uh, sewing in a spare bedroom in their home, which was crazy because nobody had a spare bedroom in their home. So I remember like getting in the box and being goofy and like throwing like fabric everywhere and kind of becoming a character and letting go. And all the people in that room laughed so hard that that was the moment 
that I got addicted to entertaining and making people laugh. Sure. And so it's funny to say I watched certain TV shows as a kid and wanted to model myself after these people, but I didn't like who I was and I didn't like where I was going. And I was aware enough that MTV wasn't just something that you watched. MTV was a place that you could go. Sure. And something you could become a part Directly of. Directly influenced by. Like, yeah. and, not, and not just like, not like a pure consumption, but like this was a, this was a, a potential model. A roadmap. Yeah. To some sort of popularity or social success. Right. Uh, we need to close the windows because my gardeners are here. Right. <laughs> it's going to get really just, yeah, it's on the other side there. And I'm going to leave this in because if you would have told me that I would have gardeners, I would have fucking <laughs> You'd died. You'd be like, no goddamn way. I would have died. Right. But, you know, so the, the personality that you saw on stage, um, there were a lot of people in the hardcore community that were on stage playing the role of Johnny Hardcore. Right. And telling the audience exactly what they wanted to hear. I was self-confident enough where I could have been Johnny Hardcore. I could have played on those emotions and told everybody exactly what they wanted to hear. However, I realized early on that the music scene was just like another scene that I liked. Music was just like wrestling. And people don't want to hear this, but music is just as fake as wrestling. Oh, sure. When the guys get on the stage, they've got a formulated thing that they're going to tell you to put you in their pocket. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I became a villain? And wouldn't it be cool if I played up to all of these stereotypes that people have about me? Um, I went on stage and completely acted like a womanizer. Mm -hmm. And like I was Mr. Rock and Roll. And I was very far from being any of those things. I always had a steady girlfriend. (laughs) I always had this thing going on, that thing going on. Um, And so for me... It was creating this character because, frankly, I thought everybody else had created a character, too, and I wanted people to have fun. And I never took the band to Europe because, like, why would I go someplace that doesn't have the same sense of humor or sarcasm? Because that is my superpower. And ultimately, I decided that I was done with the band when I realized, Ray, that I'm like, I think I enjoy the spaces in between the songs. Oh, more than the actual music. More than the music. Dude, it's so, it's so funny you say that because I, I, I can... Em- I can empathize with that because I definitely, I mean, I created no character in the band that I played in. I was definitely, whatever, hard on the sleeve, like that nice guy. Like that's, that is my persona. I mean, that's my natural default mode. So you are. Yeah, exactly. But it it definitely was like the, um, I enjoyed the ability to connect with people in between songs, like in a different way than what you were doing. But it was still, um, it never got to the point where I felt like obviously needed to like step away from the band because of it. But it was definitely one of those things where it was like, the uh, the fellow guys that I played with, like it became a running joke where they were just like, you know, they would play a song as I'm still talking because they were just like, Ray, shut the fuck up. Like, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Time, it's time to play the song. You've been talking for like 10 minutes about whatever it is that's on your mind. I just wanted to put on a show sure. and I wanted to have it be a theme and have a beginning, a, a twist and an ending. And I wanted it to be something that people would talk about. Uh, a bit of a theater production, if you will. Right. And um, I, I really enjoyed it. And I take a lot of pride in that I entertained people. I made people laugh. If you were smart, you got the joke. And if you weren't smart, then you made the other people laugh harder at the joke. Right. And I felt a lot of pride that I was never a guy that would be backstage 
bragging about the chick that I just fucked and then going on stage and giving this fake speech that's like, you got to respect these women and fake cry. And this song, <laughs> this song's anti-rape. Well, who the fuck has the pro-rape song? Right. Explain that to me. Who's the band that got their fucking money made off of being pro-rape? Totally. And I mean, to be anti-rape, what the fuck? Who's not right. anti-rape? And that's just such a weird thing. Like it's a hollow statement. It really is. Mm-hmm. I'm for the. I'm for animals. Well, who the fuck is against animals? Right. Like, who hates dogs? You're talking. You're talking about a very, very small percentage of the entire population of this planet is going to disagree with you. Like, was there ever a guy in the back who was like a rapist? Like, oh, oh I can't participate. It. I gotta right, walk see out. See ya. <laughs> this band sucks. <laughs> yeah, I was totally planning on doing this this evening, but I didn't want to be one of those dudes you know and, sure. and i always used to joke around that when i left the hardcore scene i was going to start you remember the old gossip uh tv show hard copy oh of course i was going to start something called hardcore hard copy okay because i was so rowdy everybody told me all their dark secrets sure and i knew in my head who the real guy was <laughs> right when the guy on stage was doing his show you know where the bodies were buried yeah right. and i'm like you know what fuck you man like you're telling everybody all this stuff how you should respect women and you're kind of degrading my character a little bit of what I do, but I'm the guy here who's probably being the most honest and by being what I'm saying is not real and take it for what it is. And it's like, you know, fuck you. You're too embarrassed to buy your own condoms, but you don't mind me to do it because you don't want people to know that you fuck. That you're right. I'm proud to fuck. Right. Buying condoms is a badge of honor. Like, guess what? Guess Somebody what? is so little disgusted by me that they'll let me have sex with them. Right. How magical is that? Yeah, you're like, this is, this is, this is rad. This is happening. But I mean, I, honestly, I think a lot of that has to do with with most people's and i'm not excusing the behavior but it's mostly due to just youth and stupidity because a lot of it and granted i'm speaking more so from the the specific like the orange county hardcore scene so it's like these are these are bands like uh you know 18 visions bleeding through like uh, those are the bands that taken was playing with and there was definitely um not to the extent of what you're talking about in regards to like oh this is this is the political message i'm sharing on the stage and then off the stage i'm doing something completely completely you know different in the antithesis of i knew some real fucking hypocrites yeah, it, but but there was definitely a element of of being hypocritical in regards to like oh I don't want to like you know the the notion of being a rock star and the notion of playing in a band like uh, like oh I you know I that that attention like whatever like I, I, I'm fine with it but that's not what I'm like striving for but it's like yeah like you said it's honestly the moment that I was able to realize that I was able to like make out with a girl because for the sole reason of me singing in a band I was like. Oh shit, like this is powerful. And like what do I do with that? I don't think women quite understand the power that they have over us. Yeah. Um Okay, so like any girl can basically have sex anytime that she wants to. No questions asked. So therefore, they're pretty bored with it. Sure. And it takes something special to get them to that moment. But when you're a guy and you've been programmed your whole life, that sex is this like it's it's not just the game it is the game it's the end result that you're like programmed for sure when you find all of a sudden that there's an easier way to get there it is an intoxicating experience and like i mentioned earlier in the interview my senior year in high school i lost my fucking mind yeah i mean girls cared nothing about me in southern indiana all of a sudden now i'm going to school in downtown louisville one of the coolest schools and there's girls that care about me. They want to hang out with me. And I didn't even realize, Ray, that I was being played by girls. Like, totally. I was so um, dumb because I'd never been in that spot before. People were like, you know that that girl wants to get with you. I'm like, what? what? Really? And, it, and then when, you know, 
the keys of the kingdom are literally sitting on the table in front of you. You're like, well, well why wouldn't I take it? Absolutely. And, you know, by making some big mistakes, then you realize that, you know, there's a balance to life. And I've learned everything that I've learned from making really, really bad mistakes. Of course. But being, being dumb enough to make mistakes is great, but being smart enough to learn from them is even better. Absolutely. And it really sets you up for there's so many things that I'm qualified to hang with people on the show because I've been dumb enough to be there and to do it. You know? Absolutely. And this time around... Um, I kind of ruined my music career, you know, for being young and dumb and, and just being a kid. Uh, my art career, I made a lot of decisions differently the second time around. I got a second lease in life. Sure. And now I feel like the podcasting is like my third real try in life. And I just take so much of the experience that I have and I bring it to the show. And um, in a weird way, I do play... I play a couple of characters on the show. I play the really stupid guy that doesn't get it. Because right. in today's politically correct times, the one person I'm really allowed to make fun of is myself. Sure. So I do play the dumb guy. I play the dumb American. I love that character a lot. Um, but I all, And I do a lot of sarcasm that I feel very comfortable being sarcastic because I feel like I spend enough time being the real me that people go, oh, he's... Oh, he doesn't mean that. He's doing it again. Yeah. Uh, but I do play... For the first time in my life, I play Johnny Hardcore on this show, and I do say the fucking hardcore speeches, but I know people that didn't back that up, and I back up everything that I say on this show. Sure. And I, I have an undefeated record of only getting letters from people that saying this show helped out my career, and I've never received a letter where I took your advice, and now I'm in hot water. Right. And that's become a big thing in the art world because there's so many people now that are... Um, bootlegging, you know, these properties. Of course. And with, you know, I got all the equipment out in the garage right now. If you and I want to go make bootleg Star Wars shirts, we could be selling them down on 2nd Street by 4 o'clock today. Absolutely. And it's 12.30 for those of you that are keeping time. <laughs> so I've been very adamant about working hard, doing it the right way. You know, that intellectual property is just as sacred as yours is. And, mm -hmm. and people think, oh, fuck Disney. They got enough money. They don't need more. Where, is it, where When do you start deciding and becoming the judge and the yeah, jury on right. who you, needs more? Totally. You can't, you're not the arbiter. You're not the person who's making those decisions. Yeah. Because ultimately, all you're doing, I mean, all you're doing is, is, is putting very little creative energy yeah. into something that isn't your own. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I've, I've made a lot of lines in the sand. And I tell people, you know, look, man, you got to keep in mind, all of my advice comes from if people are listening to it, I want them to take it. Right. You could probably get away with some things. There are gray areas in the world of art. That's why it's magical and why it's art. Right. But I'm a guy with a podcast, and I give out the opinions based on this is probably the long con. This is probably the right way to do it. Right. And I make those decisions based on that. So it's really interesting at this point in my life at 40 years old how many things have come full circle and how I've really – I don't believe in God. I would love to. One of my best episodes ever is I talked to a guy, Mike Jones, who's a devout Christian. Sure. And I really respect Christianity. I don't play it off like that's a thing for stupid people like some people like to <laughs> right. do. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm very envious of people that have a spiritual... A faith to hang, right. Yeah, well, that would be fucking awesome if like Mickey Mouse was a real dude and I could believe in him. But I have not been touched by the church and I, and I, I can't follow what I feel is blindly from my own personal experience. Sure. Um... But I do 
respect that and the people that have that. And I've become a big believer in the universe. Like there's, you could never have designed where I've ended up in my life, but I'm 40 years old. I still feel like I'm 20. I'm doing the thing that I'm absolutely meant to do. I feel like I'm getting better and better and better at it every month. I'm not afraid to admit that. And I feel like so much life experience, so many things that I did and I got close on, but it didn't really take off for me was such a great learning experience to be qualified to do this bullshit thing, you know? Yeah. And it feels great. It feels like there is a universe. Like when you watch Lost, right? Sure. And all these people were connected through this weird through line of time. I really do feel like that's how the real world works somehow. Totally. And this is where I was meant to be. And the initial records catalog was a seed that was put out into the universe that somehow has spun around and this this moment in time, like now those two lines are crossing, you know? Absolutely. And that, and you know, listening to my friend Matt Pryor on your show is a magical moment of I'm getting ready to interview a guy who's interviewing one of my friends and I'm going to listen to all these questions that I know the answers to to sort of see how this guy does his job. That's a magical sort of crossroad of space and time. Oh, totally. I mean, I think it's one of those things. I reflect on the idea of, of starting something with that, uh, that kind of blind, that blind passion of just like, well, I really like this and I want to do this. Like, the, yeah. after my band broke up in 2004, there was about a year and a half where it wasn't like, I wasn't scrounging for an identity, but I was like, I, I want oh. to do another band. I know a lot of other people do that. Oh, yeah. That's a rough moment. It is a rough moment, especially, especially just because, uh, you know, you're known as, as uh, this person from this band. It's like, your last name. So you did, yeah. I was uh, Ray from Taken. You're Mark from the Kindles. That's it. There you go. And when you start to think about what can that be? I actually wrote a song about it. If you go to iTunes, you can find a song. And I've never, ever plugged my music once. <laughs> but it's because it's, it's never been relative to the conversation. Sure. There's a song called Just Another Sellout. And it's literally me self-evaluating, can I quit this band? Mm-hmm. You know, and the, one of the lyrics, and it's not you know, monumental, is where do I stand without a band? And that was literally like a fucking big thing because my band raised me. Sure. From 15 to 26. I wanted to quit at 25 if I wasn't a real musician. <laughs> right. Because there's nothing sadder than an old guy that doesn't know when to quit. And I made that deal when I was 15. I had that sort of insight. But that band becomes your identity. So, sure. Ray, when you say no to that and you call it quits, every time somebody comes up to you like, hey, man, when's the band playing again? Yeah, you're like, well, it's, we're, we're not. We broke up or whatever. And it, 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 it does. Like, I mean, I Did was, you ever not go to a show because you didn't want to tell people about the band breaking up? No. I never. Fortunately, like I said, I honestly, <clears throat> I made a very deliberate decision where it was honestly shortly after I started to realize that people were paying attention to me just because of me getting up in front of people. Once I realized that, I was like, okay, I can take advantage of that, that relationship with people. Yeah. Um, or I can realize, that, like, this is a fleeting moment. Like, I know that this isn't going to be something I'm doing for 10 years. Mm. Or this isn't something I'm going to be doing to make a lot of money at. Yeah. So once I made that realization, the identity for me was two separate things. Partially, too, because I was watching everybody else around me buy into it. I was watching all these people who were just like, Dude, like, I mean, we're not that fucking cool. Like, yeah, we're yelling in front of, you know, four or 500 people. Like, that's pretty rad. Yeah. And other people were more successful at it, and that's fine. Um, but it was never, I, I never felt the compulsion to be like, that is my only thing. That's why I did other things. Do you feel that you didn't give yourself a fair shake to make the band successful? Because every time you talk about it, you yeah. have to give yourself a verbal 
asterisk or disclaimer. Well, I always knew that it wouldn't be the thing. I knew it wouldn't last forever. Yeah. Do you think that your life would have been different if you would have did it and thought maybe this could be the thing? Like, why did you put a ceiling on your fun? Yeah. I Well, it was never a ceiling of fun because we always pursued it with our whole, like, we, we built our lives around it. Right. I was just fortunate enough to where, you know, wor- like working at the record label like I did. It st- allowed me to get a paycheck. It paid me way more money than I deserve at 22 years old. Yeah. But I, I, I just had the notion where it's like, this, this isn't something that is quote unquote sustainable, where it's not something I can look 10 years down the line and be like, oh yeah, I see me still doing this. Mm. I just looked at playing in a band as a sheer collection of experiences where it was like, dude, I, I was able to go to Japan for like five years in a row. Like, it's are amazing. you fucking kidding it's me? Amazing. Like all, all the things that, that I experienced with that particular band were just me basically picking up bright, shiny rocks and being like, dude, I'll put this in my backpack. Yeah, this you're is, right. This is rad. So Ray, I, you know what it's like to, to walk onto a stage in a club. Yeah. The lights come up. You get that rush from the crowd that you're there. Right. And that is a thing that many people will fantasize about. And we have that in our back pocket. Totally. It's, and it's and an amazing thing to have. It is. It's a, it's a, it, even though everybody and their mother plays in a band, but like to reach a certain level where it's just like... To be in a real band. Totally. Yeah. Where you're actually where you're connecting with people on a real and true and emotional level. You've put the mic out totally. and somebody knew the word and screamed it back at you. Yeah, and you're like, well, this is a weird thing. Yeah. This is a weird relationship. But the, the notion of, of me... Because then I, I played in a band for a few years after that. It was called Makoto. But we started it off... Was and Makoto re- you chasing the glory? What's that? Was the second band you chasing the glory? 100%. Okay. It was the, the, I was basically looking at it from the standpoint of like everything that you're talking about, all the mistakes that you made, everything you poured into the, the previous lives that you mentioned. Yeah. I was trying to take this and I was like, okay, this band Makoto, this is going to be a real thing. We're going to force the shit out of this Mm. thing. And it was one of those things where I didn't necessarily care about the music that we were actually creating. This was just something that was coming off like, oh, well, like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm okay to sing over this and yell over this. Um, but, I, like, did I feel as emotionally connected to the music as what I did with my previous band? No. Right, right. But, and, I, and that's why that band failed from a sort of business perspective. We were able to do a lot of cool things, again, collecting those experiences, but I went into it with the mentality of a very um, cold and calculating business person. And it really did. I, I felt like there was no reason that that should have been successful People because of that. People can somehow sniff that out absolutely there is something about the the ethos or the mindset of people where they know what's genuine and Mm. what's not and you know the guys on stage that become the characters that are telling the 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 people what they want to hear that's not how they started out they got lost along the way and as we've learned in star wars you know we all thought darth vader was the man he was just a fucking casualty of middle management absolutely you get lost along the way sometimes in life but it's that genuine purpose. So if, you know, a friend of mine, uh, he and some other guys in big bands, they tried to calculate the success. Mm-hmm. I really, really enjoyed the record, but it didn't really go anywhere because it was maybe too calculated. Totally. Even though it's some of the best music that all of these guys had ever done. Uh, but it just was too like, well, we're going to make a super group. Well, sometimes people don't want to hear a super group. Sometimes <laughs> yeah. they want to give somebody else a chance. You sure. Know? And there's a reason why the worst game of the NFL season is the all-star game. Well, we, they're not trying. Oh. We don't give a fuck. No. Unless you are a degenerate and you put like $1,000 on the over, there's no reason to watch <laughs> no that reason. game. None. But, you know, you're right. You've you got to be true to yourself. But being in a band is very, very addictive in the sense of having that identity. 
being Mark from blank. Sure. Being Ray from blank. So do you feel that the podcast, 100 Words, for you is still hanging on to having a disclaimer next to your name? No. Partially for the reason because uh, since I do... uh, I think this is just a kind of a, a, a symptom of the culture. When I say the culture, like our independent music culture I yeah. was brought up in, where it's like, I have a full-time job. I do consulting work for a record label. I manage producers. These are all things that I use at, as part of my quote-unquote resume. So I don't necessarily feel like a person from this thing. I feel like a person, like, and this is going to sound like total pie-in-the-sky, cheesy, wishy-washy. Let it go, brother. But we're, I feel, we're deep. We're deep. We are deep. We're balls deep. I feel it's like I... If people want help in music, they come to me in whatever capacity that may be, whether it's like a band that is looking for advice or whatever. That's the reputation that I want to leave rather than like being this person from this specific thing. There are very many instances where people know me from one thing and don't even realize that I do this other thing that they are like, oh, yeah, like I I do this other thing. And they're like, oh, wow, like you work for PETA. Like I didn't know that. It's like, oh, yeah, like you're vegan or vegetarian. Like we could probably work together. And so like I'm able to take people from one basket, put them in another basket, and then vice versa. And so because of that sort of like interchangeableness that I have with my professional life, I don't feel, um, I guess, as attached identity-wise to all these things because I feel like I'm living in like four separate universes, you know? And then like, oh, and then I have a a four-and-a-half-year-old child and I'm married. Like I have all of these things that I pull from that um, give me more of a, of a, I don't know, sense of worth than just that, that one thing, like being known as a podcaster, being known as a guy that works a record label, being known as Ray from Peter or whatever. Like all of these things, like, yes, that is a component of what I do. But then like, if you spend five minutes talking to me, I'll probably mention this other thing. They'll be like, wait, you do that? <laughs> do you feel like these things suffer because they all one hundred percent. I'll interrupt you know, your question. I, I, <laughs> I am the jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah, um, and I'm fine with that. And I be partially because I know my personality, where I just I just don't like saying no. Yeah, because cool things come across my desk where I'm just like, this is like I can't say no to this because like it's either a friend that wants to like work with me and doing something fun, and I'm like, why would I say no to that? I don't give a shit. I don't have time. I'll wedge it in somehow. You manage producers. I do. People that produce. People that, basically people that are, uh, you know, they own their own studio and are looking for more work and more bands, more artists, whatever it is they're looking for. I'm trying to help them achieve that. So basically mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, hey, like you, you have the month of November open. Like I'll pound the pavement and see if I can get some bands in there for you. So these are, these are two close friends who I've known for years and years and years who uh, were just in positions where they're just like, oh, yeah, like uh, most of the booking that I do for my studio is just like people randomly Facebook messaging me. I'm like, there's a better way. Yeah, And you've worked in A&R. I worked at A&R. That's what I did for Century Media. Signing bands. So that's what that is for people. Yep. Signing bands, doing basically taking a record from or taking a band from point A to point Z in regards to their whole trajectory of like getting a record together, finding a producer, everything and that do, doing the artwork, like figuring out all those components. Who's your best signing? My best signing, uh, most of it was done within the context of like early 2000s. So this is when 
uh, the whole sort of, I mean, more metallic hardcore was a thing. But there's bands like Suicide Silence, Winds of Plague, Stick to Your Guns. Some of these bands are around still. Some of them are not. Yeah. Primarily, because basically I was brought into Century Media to be the sort of punk hardcore guy because they didn't have one. Yeah. And so I was enlisted to basically help a lot of these bands. Like I signed Terror. I signed Earth Crisis. Um, and so there, I mean, as far as a sales thing was concerned. How uh, did those bands do? How, like, because you would think, yeah. you see what Earth Crisis did for Victory Records. Yes. You would think money and the fucking bank. Yeah. Kimura's season has ended. Of Let's course. get it beginning. Totally. So how did that translate over to Century Media? Uh, Century Media, we, because basically we put out their first record after they quote unquote came back. So this is around 2006, I want to say. Yeah. Um, so sales wise, it was awful. It was awful. Yeah. Um, but I mean, awful in the sense of, we were never going to capture those numbers that you're talking about. It's like more season ends. I mean, it's like SoundScan wasn't even a thing, so I don't even know how many copies that sold. Right. And it's in the same capacity as where it's just like, think of how many copies Gorilla Biscuits Start Today has sold. I don't know. There'd Seven be no million. Way to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> you're just like, I don't know. Yeah. But that's such a ubiquitous record that everybody owns a copy of it. Um, so it was awful from a, a commercial standpoint, and maybe more. We, we maybe had more aspirations to be like, oh, yeah, like we'll ship like 50,000 units. You know, we sold probably close to between U.S. and Europe, probably like 25,000, 30,000. Scott Vogel from Terror is one of my favorite people in the world. Love uh, him. Even though we've grown apart in the last you know couple of decades, uh, Despair was a big part of early initial record. Sure. Huge part. Yeah. And Scott represents, in my mind, that you never have to grow up. He wanted to be a guy that was the front man for a band, a yeah. hardcore band. Right. And that's exactly what he's doing today, and it's exactly what he was doing back then. And out of all the people um, in my life that I've seen, you know, like I've become fucking four different people since then. Yeah, yeah. And the only thing he did was he sort of did that Hulk Hogan move where he was a good guy, and then he went to a heel. Uh, but he's still the dude living Absolutely. the dream. And I, I find that they're, they're, to me, I love the people that are the constant, you know, and mm -hmm. what Scott's done with Tara is pretty amazing. Let me give you a suggestion. Okay. Because I love to meddle in people's business. Why not? You do a good job of talking to people that are already successful in music. Sure. Maybe you've done this and I've missed it, but what about taking on a band? What about bringing somebody on the show listening to their concerns and honestly evaluating them and giving them the real, you know, you're never going to be successful if you think this way sure. or the neck. Like what? I mean, cause there's so many people that want to break in. You're a California guy. You've worked at the record label. You know, the recording industry, you've been in a band, your friends are in bands. You've interviewed bands. Nobody is more qualified than you are to make a pretty good guesstimate sure. on what some 21 year old kids with an ounce of talent should do. Have you ever thought about taking that approach? Because it would be wildly fascinating to listen to. Yeah, no, it's a good point. I mean, I've definitely, I, I, I do sort of that advice thing on like kind of just a very sort of person to person level. Yeah. I've never done like a test case, but that, I mean, that is an interesting idea um, to be able to take uh, something that I may identify as special in some capacity and like talk, talk a person through in public and kind of follow right. that journey or whatever. Right. Um, yeah, I, frankly, I would just never do that because uh, I just know I don't have the time. I don't know. I, I know that I wouldn't be able to, in order for me to properly quote unquote document that in the way that I, like you saying that I already have like seven different ideas. You made it complicated. Yeah, or or I, I didn't make it complicated, but I up to the standards of what I would want that to be. Yeah. Like to me, this would be a two month, 
month experiment, I would put out like, you know, if I was relating it to a podcast, I would put it out over, uh, you know, like maybe uh, by, by, by weekly. So that's twice a month. Um, so maybe broken over to four episodes total. And it would be a very journalistic approach. Like mm. I would have, you know, I would have a script that I would read off of and I would be doing it. Inter- <laughs> See, this is what I've gone so far in three minutes. And like, yeah. because that's the way that I would view that thing as being compelling. Cause like, Offering advice to me is a very, um, it's a very personal thing. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't view myself as an expert. I view myself as having experience just like you do, where it's like, you're like, yeah, I'm really good at this thing and I will be able to hopefully guide you in some capacity. Um, but it, it is an interesting idea. But we know that the music industry is, uh, it's a thing that it's a party that once you get invited to it and you get to know all the players, you're like, I can't wait to get out of the party. Like right. it's not as glamorous as you know. And people have this wall built around it that they're here and the industry's over there. And once you get into the industry, it's really just, it's all momentum and who you know. And when your momentum's hot, then you can open up any door and get any phone call. And when you go cold, brother, you go ice cold. Totally. And all the friends and all the connections just totally go away. And it's just one of those weird things. But I think that from a content perspective, it'd right. be really interesting to see and for the listeners to learn. It's a really good way for you to sure. show about all these pieces of the puzzle that you know that maybe sometimes you're playing a little not playing dumb with but sort of leaving on the table when you right. do an interview from a real fan perspective versus an insider or you know because you don't ever get on the show and go so how'd the last record scan yeah and you know how, how do you feel that the label spending money on you what do you feel totally, like the next totally. you never get into that but you're aware of it yeah because i feel to me that feels so topical and what potentially can be irrelevant in mm. six months time. Like I really, so the, you really think about the fact that people are finding these episodes years after 100%. I try to make the, 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 the feelings and the emotion at, at the forefront. I try to make it as evergreen as possible. Like, yeah. I mean the, the, the numbers and I, I, like the, that stuff is all incredibly interesting to me, but I, I, I know that, very many people are not going to find that same passion for the, the sort of nuts and bolts in regards to that. But I do try to, I really try to focus on making stuff as evergreen as possible to where it, because I, I do have people jump in just because you know, this, when you're putting out so much content on a weekly basis, um, you're going to have people that are jumping in and out. Um, and you never know when all of a sudden they'll be like, oh, I haven't checked out your show in a year. And then all of a sudden I'm just like, oh, my gosh, like I spent, you know, a good six months listening to the back catalog. Yeah. And it, you want to still have that relevance to a person and not just like really hit on those those very topical, you know, non-evergreen moments, I guess. No, we can. Gardeners are gone and it's getting hot in here. <laughs> we can open it up. You get four balls in one room. It's going to it's going to get there. You know, the the complaint that I get from. My peers is Mark. You're making too many episodes. Five days a week is too much. And I, I, I tell them that they couldn't be more wrong. <laughs> I, I took so much time carefully thinking out the strategy of making podcasting my profession. And my concept with too much data out there is this motherfuckers work Monday through Friday, and I want to be there with them. Monday through Friday. I want to be a real radio talk show. And I want to have the bond where when you're in the grind, I'm there with you. Now, I know that the everyday listener is probably, it's a healthy percentage of my listenership, but it's not everybody. Right. And I look at it this way. If you work to make the everyday listener happy, that's an unbelievable bond. We're in it to win it. We're doing it together. They're very important in the whole overall strategy. But the guy that comes once a year, 
you've already got him covered. But if you only do it once a year, you fucked off so many other people mm-hmm. that can't decide, I only want to listen to the guests that I know, or I only want to listen to Fridays. I only want to listen to Mondays. And so I feel like putting, quote, unquote, too much out there is the best catch-all to make everybody happy because you don't have to listen to all five episodes. Right, yeah. So do you feel like, because, I mean, I'll be honest, I, I listen to your show only when I know the guest or I, I've heard, I, I am from, I've never heard an interview with them before. Yeah. I don't listen to all of your shows. The, and I, I think, and partially just because the amount of podcasts that I listen to, I mean, it's economy of time. I just don't have the ability. Well, when you make a podcast, you have less time to listen to podcasts. To, totally. But, I mean, honestly, I, there, I, I think in my podcast catcher, I think there's probably about 45 to 50 shows that I listen to wow. on a semi-regular basis. Yeah. So, I mean, it's stupid. I, I very, you skip around. You look for what you want. Oh, I do. Yeah. But I, think, but I think it's an interesting notion of what you're talking about where it's like you feel, um, I mean, you're very much taking a radio-esque model. Um, and you are essentially trying to give people options where, like you said, you're, because each of the days obviously reflects on a different aspect. So it's like you said, because Friday is like shop talk, right? Right. And so it's like a person who isn't interested in the industry, so to speak, isn't going to be checking that out, but they are going to be listening to the interview. So I think that I like that it's not, um, because I I do, I, I hate it when people look at podcasts like a radio show. Because those are the, it's like whatever Adam Carolla. It's like all he did was just basically take the audience from his radio show and turn it into. And Joe Rogan is the same way. Like yeah. I don't slag these people because clearly they're successful at it. They can talk for seven hours at a time and yeah. <laughs> they don't blink. Yeah. Um, but I, the people that feel like they need to adapt to that sort of mode by doing a podcast, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but like I, it makes me happy to hear that from you because that was always your intention. As opposed to like feeling like, oh, I don't know how to do this, so I guess I'm just going to make like a radio show. Well, it was a strategy in that the thing that I cherished most in this world as a creative professional was my relationship with the Howard Stern Show. Sure. Because I learned how to do design at Initial Records, which was a fucking boys club. And then I find myself getting too much work and I needed to go home and have my own office and be – and it was so – lonely yeah and so the stern show gave me instant hang time i could push play push pause when a phone call came and it was basically the companionship i needed so when we did this as a whim and i realized holy fuck take a penny leave a penny i'm putting a penny back in the jar and people are enjoying this companionship while they work i've got to chase that because it's so sacred to me and so the strategy for the first year was just to do it and accomplish it. Right. And I've, I've more than done 200 episodes this year. I've been daily, um, and I'm going to make all the goals that I promised. Next year is the next part of the puzzle where the show becomes more of a channel. Because I took the first year, and I've done a lot of studying on listeners' habits, listeners' feedback, my enjoyment, what I get out of it, what's efficient, what's not efficient. So next year we see a whole new saga. Sure. But you know what? I'm not just a guy that watches TV. I read the trade papers. I love watching the ratings. I love the strategy. Totally. Like one of my favorite shows is going to get canceled, but it's in a fifth season. So it's guaranteed a renewal because after a hundred episodes. Syndication. Yeah. Of course. So I, I look at all of this as it's my chance to not only be a guy on the radio, but I get to play fantasy programmer or of fantasy course. executive. Um, and so I'm going to change things up for next year, but I love being on five days a week 
because I know that people work five days a week. The math also breaks down for my payment model that I invented. And also, um, I just like that it makes me seem real. You know, it makes me seem legit. Oh, you podcast once a month. I podcast five days a week, 200 episodes a year. Right. It's a thing. It's a real thing. And, and I should be doing that much because it's my fucking career. Totally. And I, I, you know, I even do stuff on my off days. Like I will sit down with somebody and we'll talk for two and a half hours. That gets chopped up. So every day, Monday through Friday, there's new content on my stream. Sure. But I'm building something here. I'm building a relationship with creative people. I'm, I'm making a relationship that I know is really, really important. It's very sacred to me. And where people are like, dude, you make too much. It's like, well, just enjoy what you want. Of course. But there are people that are like, oh, man, you're going to be off next week? Fuck, I'm going to be so lonely without Yeah, that. absolutely. You know, the relationship is there for some. Totally. No, it's a very... Yeah, it's a very real thing, but I, th- I mean, I think you've, you hit the nail on the head where it's just like, if, if this is your job, there's really no reason for you to not do it as much as you're doing it. <laughs> and I want to get good at it. Absolutely. So the grind of, you know, five conversations a week, pr- I produce it all myself. Right. Uh, I recently, th- the middle of this year, I hit a stalemate where I was so overwhelmed with working on this Disney project that I recently did. Right. And I couldn't tell anybody about that. And so people were like, why is it the same people on the show all the time? And so I brought my friend David on to become a producer and help book the show. And that really gave it a lot of life, just having an extra set of hands. But I still edit the whole show, write up the notes, do the cover art, do the interviews, research the interviews. Um, so there's a lot of me in it, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm a hard worker and I like it. You know? Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, I think because I, I, I always look at it from the standpoint, if the show, because I mean, honestly, it's like the, the money that I make off of, of my particular podcast. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm floored by it. Yeah. It's like, I mean, let's see the past, the, within the past year, I'll have made close to $25,000 in advertising. That's amazing. It's stupid. Yeah. It's stupid because it's just like, wh- why? I, I, and I'm represented by an ad company that services my podcast to, so I don't do any work. Wow, that's awesome. These things come to me. So if this thing were to ever turn into a, a real, you know, like a, where I'd be like, well, yeah, I'd quit my job for this. Um, then I would, you know, I would be, I, I honestly, I would be in the same exact boat as you where I'd be like, I'd have one Maybe two other people like working with me on this thing. Yeah. But, you know, because like, you see some things like, you know, people, the moment they have any sort of inkling of money, they blow it out to where they're just like, oh, yeah, I got like seven people working with me. Like, you're responsible for those people. What are you doing? Congratulations, you're stupid. You took yeah. a fortune and turned it into a debt. Yeah. I mean, there's people who do that. I mean, I won't lie. Ultimately, my career ambition yep. is I want a studio and I want people in that studio with me every day. Sure. And I want Adventures in Design to be perceived as a location, as a place on a map, um, and that there's people that are on the show every day, and that there's guests. I mean, I basically want to build my own, like, Howard Stern show. Do you want, you, would you take your show into, like, you know, would you want it to be on, like, on public radio? You, do you want to turn this into a thing? I would love to do TV. Okay. But I have I would love to do TV or satellite radio, but I have no um, <laughs> no idea of or, or any notion of doing regular radio. Right. It's such a pointless medium in today's world. It's the most obsolete. I think a newspaper has more value than regular radio. Sure. Um, but I would I would be interested in doing TV. I'd be interested in to, you know more distribution. Sure. Um, but I really think that 
what I've struck upon with my friend Billy Bauman, who actually was the creator of the concept. I mean, he was the one who sent the email like, hey, we're going to do a podcast. Mm-hmm. And I was immediately bummed out because I didn't know I was in the royal we. I'm like, oh, he's doing a podcast. Oh, great idea. Fuck. I wish I would have thought of that. Totally. But he was like, no, you're going to be the host, stupid. And, and you're like, oh, sick. Yeah, great idea. I will take this job. <laughs> um, but, you know, when we decided we were going to do a podcast and we figure out how to program it, there is talk radio for politics, sports, yep. um, you know, lifestyle through NPR, you know, like kind of a Sunday paper that people read to you. Sure. But there's really not a talk show for the creative workforce, Yep. which with everybody wanting to be somebody special, there's more creative workers than ever. Mm-hmm. There's tens of thousands of us, um, and globally, there's an audience for it. And the, the thing that I'm the most proud of is the real talk. Like, I will talk about anything and everything. We talked about sex in this episode. Of course. We talked about being a guy and trying to get some. We talked about defending people that are different. It's really the conversation of two dudes in a car driving from L.A. to San Francisco, just killing time. Whatever comes our way, we'll talk about. Yep. Um, and a lot of the shows that are my competition, they take a very academic approach. Sure. And I don't want to do that. I want to be your design buddy. I want you to think of me as your coworker. I want to th- think of these are the people that entertain me while I make the great stuff. Absolutely. And if people listen daily, that's great. But if they wait till they're on a deadline and they listen to five episodes at once. Yeah. I got Netflix. Right. I'm a marathoner. <laughs> yeah, I'm, bi- I'm binging. Yeah. I'm cool. However you consume it. That's great. I just want to take care of the guy that needs the most and know that everybody else falls down from there. Yeah. No, I think it's a really, cause I, that I, I feel the exact same way about the 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 idea of a discussion around independent music because it's like whatever i look at every because i've been following podcasts since like 2007 yeah technology was the first podcasts that were prevalent you know it's like leo laporte like first one i ever listened to was that, leo. Was, that was my introduction to podcasting too so obviously technology and every technology show about every particular subject you want popped up. It was then, nerds for nerds at that point. Totally. And then once comedy started to become a thing, like that obviously propelled, you know, Chris Hardwick and every, yeah. everybody else that was obviously, well, they weren't early adopters. They were the second wave. Right. <clears throat> but then now it's like such a democratization of the, the medium that it, it bums me out when I look at the top, whatever, 150 shows on the music section of iTunes. And it's like the top uh, 20 out of like maybe, yeah, out of those 20, there's maybe like, I don't know, like five or six shows that are like actually like really high quality, good shows. Um, and then there's others that are like Tiesto's club mix where it's not a podcast. It's him playing four hours of music. Like that's not a podcast. Like it just, it bums me out. And that's the same, the, the exact same feeling that you're talking about of being like, oh yeah, there's nothing that is servicing this community. And that's the way that I feel of that. My show is filling in where it's like, okay, yeah, we're not going to talk about, like we were saying earlier, the numbers of the week. We're not going to talk about how, you know, sound scan and moving units and whatever else you want to know. This is going to be this something that is more evergreen. It's essentially, I am creating hopefully a historical document of this, this, you know, essentially it's a zine in audio where it's just like, if you can listen to all these shows as, as few or as much as you would like, you're going to see these, these through lines, you're going to see these commonalities, and ultimately you're going to see why the fuck people pursue doing creative work. 
people should realize that you don't ever take a life story and Apple A, select all. Yeah. You Apple C, you Apple V. You cut, you paste. And there's a little something you can learn from everybody's life experience. Totally. And I do feel a lot of pride like you do that when it's all said and done, I will have documented the world of design, mm. the world of music, the world of skateboarding, the world of small business. Mm. And like you, you're basically taking people's life stories and you're stacking them up on a shelf. You're linear. I'm a little all over the place, but you still get the same result of learning how these people did their thing. And I'm, I kind of think there's like my overall goal or, or dream for this project would be there's the level that. You know, I always say Letterman because that's the guy that raised me. But there's the Jimmies. Yep. There's that level of a talk show. And then, you know, and there's the 11, the 1230 guys are in that same boat. There's like the, the, the big TV guys. Right? right. Then there's the level of like Mark Maron, mm-hmm. where you're kind of in that world or you're not in that world. But Mark will give you a time and it's all, you know, project based and life story based. But then there's this underground there's a dude like Mike Villaley that lives in my neighborhood that is a fucking celebrity to a certain generation of people. Yep. And to anybody else, he's a creepy guy that you keep your eye on because he looks like he could fucking stab Kill you. Kill right, yeah. yeah. That's what I would love for this show to be, where people that have followed a passion became this like underground celebrity and has a great story to tell. I'd like to create a home for them, whether it's music, whether it's business, whether it's film, whether it's acting, whatever it is, like... I don't, I mean, I would talk to Brad Pitt, but I think one of the guys on Silicon Valley that's on HBO, yeah. but still does regular appearances in LA, the guy that has his foot like in one water and the other water, that's an incredibly interesting story that he still has to go to the, the fucking pickle chuckle hut right. in Kansas City and do that. And then, but he's also on TV. So people think that he's famous and he's not. Like, I'm all about talking to people that are still sort of writing their life's experience. Of course. They've, that, because there's a really, I mean, you using those people as an example, there's a really fine line where it's just like, like clearly what is a person that you interviewing Brad Pitt, like what are you going to get out of him? You're not going to get anything that everybody in their mother has tried to get out of them for the past, you know, 20 years of his existence in popular culture. And he's also so guarded. He knows the 100%. He knew he'll, he'll know how to deflect and answer any question. But then it's like the people that are at this sort of precipice of, being like, like I get asked the question so, so often where it's just like, oh, dude, why don't you interview like, you know, like Henry Rollins? I'm like, what the fuck am I going to bring to the table with that? And not, this isn't like a self-deprecating, oh, woe is me. But I'm like, what, like literally, uh, the only thing that I could think of would just be like, what was your like most popular uh, flavor of ice cream at the Haagen-Dazs you worked at? Yeah. It's like, there's, everyone's asked him everything. And so it's like, there comes a certain point where you, you hit that wall where it's just like, oh, that, that's probably not that interesting experience. But these people that are on the quote unquote fringes of pop culture, yeah. that they don't have a space, it's perfect. See, I, I, I could see my angle with Henry Rollins. Sure. And it would be, what's it like to be Henry Rollins? Right. You know, you're the, you're sort of the status quo or you're like the icon of a certain thing. And, yeah. but yet on some flights, you're just a fucking weird guy with faded out black flag bars tattooed on his forearm. Totally. You know what I mean? Like what, you know, what is it like to be the, you know, I think probably my dream interview mm-hmm. would be Ian McKay. Yeah. Because there's a dude. You can th- call him up right now. He probably would do it. I'll get there one day. <laughs> it's just, you, he still answers the phone at the discord house. There's a guy that didn't want 
all of he didn't want to change the world, but he kind of accidentally did change some of our world. Yeah. And there's a real beauty in there. And I always feel like everybody's like, what about this guy? What about that guy? I'm like, what about we work our way to that guy? Right. You know, I, 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 I kind of believe in it'll all happen when it happens. Absolutely. I know one day I'll sit across from Shepard Ferry and talk to him about his career. Of course. I'll give him some accolades. I'll also give him some of my complaints. Sure. But it'll happen when it happens. <laughs> I don't need to go chase him down, you know? Right. It'll, it'll all... It'll all get there when it gets there. And that's sort of my vibe on the show. All right, let's, let's wrap it up if you don't mind me Please. declaring that. What do you want out of your podcast? Like, all said and done, when everybody looks back on it, this is our first ever split seven inch. Exactly. What do you want people that are listening to this that don't know who you are, what do you want them to know about your podcast? And when it's all said and done, what do you want people to say about your podcast? Sure. Uh, so the first part of that, so the, the the people that obviously have listened this entire time, I mean that's an endurance test, and I I, I commend you for listening to this much. But the uh, it, it, there is a sensibility in both of our shows that it, it's one of those things where I felt passionate about doing this with you because it was like, oh yeah, like there's the through line, there's a similarity, um, there's a, a similar sensibility to what we were doing. So the people that identify with your show are absolutely going to identify with my show as well, because there's, um, you are talking about people who are doing a creative pursuit. Cause it's like, I, I do have people who are just like, um, there's a guy I worked with at century media. His name's Andrew Hosner. He does that think space gallery up in LA. Yeah. I had him on my show and it was, you know, that was a little left of center. Like he didn't play in a band or anything, but I don't care. These are, I kind of try to put it as an umbrella statement. As long as a person has some experience with sort of punk, hardcore DIY culture, I'll bring them on. Yeah. If they don't have that experience, it's going to be harder for me to pull on those through lines. Um, so these, the, the same sensibilities that you are trying to pull out of people, I'm also trying to do in a different fashion, but in the same way that you will probably still enjoy it in a more, um, whatever, like you said, organized linear fashion or whatever. Um, and then the second part of that is the, uh, the, the pleasure that I just get out of the show is the fact that it's like, I mean, just like you, like receiving emails and like the, what people say, like the highest compliment is like exactly what you're talking about in regards to people spending time with you. It's this one-sided relationship. So it's like getting emails from a person in Moline, Illinois being like, hey, I'm an overnight janitor and like, dude, I love hanging out with you. And it's That's like, amazing. and, and the, the fact that they actually put it like that yeah. makes me feel where it's just like, That's great. Like, it's not like, hey, I'm listening to your show and like, good job. It's like, oh, I'm hanging out with you. And it's yeah. like, that's exactly the feeling that all of us are trying to mimic. Right. And so I, I think just being able to connect with people, have, give them something that still makes them feel connected to whatever it is. Because most people, it's like, I would say my target audience or the people that I notice that give me the most feedback, it's like you're talking about males and females between the ages of about 20 and 30. That's kind of the spot that I'm pulling from. Yeah. And these are people who might not be pursuing something you're passionate about, who are just doing a crappy job or whatever. But... And so they don't have time to go to shows. They don't have time to be connected to like whatever band I'm talking to. So that entry point of being like, oh, I felt like I went to a show. Or it's like, mm. I, you know, I had some dude who's just like, oh, yeah, I'm like stationed in Afghanistan or whatever. And like, he's like, uh, it makes me feel closer to home. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, I've, I've accomplished whatever I needed to already. You know, you make a good point because when I listened to the Matt Pryor interview, I was yeah. like, how in the fuck did he let this audio quality go out the door? Yeah, yeah. But then after 15 <laughs> minutes, I really felt like I was hanging out with Matt <laughs> yeah, yeah. sitting on a picnic table. Not but, ideal. Not ideal. I did not want to interview him there, but that was okay. But I, I did sort of get lost in the moment, and I've had 
you know, a hundred hours spent with Matt talking yeah. in those same environments. There's always been a, a roar of chatter and somebody kind of walking into the conversation. Right. And it did really feel like I was at the show. Uh, well, well put, man. Thanks a lot for having me on and, and vice versa for coming <laughs> exactly. on. Uh, this was weird. And I, what I was most excited about with doing the split seven inches, and I hope to do this again, is that it, there's very few people that understand this part of it. Right. And I know that people that really enjoy your show and really enjoy my show would probably like seeing behind the curtain a little bit because everybody always likes to see backstage. Sure. Um, but what a better way to show it than with somebody else who kind of gets it and knows it and understands it. So right. I, I thought of this as a really good opportunity for building that, that bond and, um, you know, letting my listeners find somebody new that's, you know, telling stories about many people in, the, in a, yep. a world that's passionate about me, but to also showing people a little bit more about myself through somebody who kind of gets it. So I appreciate that. Absolutely. This worked perfectly. So that was that. And if you're still listening to this, good job. I was actually talking to Mark about this because uh, he calls uh, it when he does a very long show like this one um, and someone makes it to the end of it. He calls it like the, I think it's the Adventures in Design Balls Deep Club or something like that where uh, people are proud and they like actually email him to be like, yo, I finished that episode. Boom. Um, so I, I, I think that's a, a funny funny way to put it. So if you have done that, um, you know, email me. You could be like, hey, Ray, listen to the whole show. Loved it. Or listen to the whole show. Hated it. Um, and this, to be clear, too, Tom Richfield, our normal producer, did not edit this show and did not produce this show. I left all this conversation basically unedited because uh, I think it really just uh, kind of sinks you into the room, you know? Um, normally, we, you know, kind of cut out certain pieces here or there but this I, I felt was just let's just let it roll so uh, if you are listening to it and you're like oh the audio quality isn't as good as it normally is that, that's because uh, I did it and not our producer so anyways thank you very much for listening visit the show's website 100wordspodcast.com please visit jabberjobmedia.com you can find out so much more info on all of the other awesome shows that are part of this collective trying to get music out to the world to a larger base and realize that like hey wow, like music is also a cool thing to pay attention to in the podcast world. So there you go. And like I said, it's presented by Soundrink. So visit soundrink.com for all of your live experience needs. And there you go. I think I'm going to go to sleep now. So until next week, please be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.